You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. motion picture dare to bring to the screen. Uh, which way to the cheerleader camp? Ah! Pandemonium! Give me a tea! I'm gonna have fun! I'm gonna wear makeup, I'm gonna go out with boys, I'm gonna sleep with truck drivers. Give me an A! When you're away at camp, don't ever touch yourself. Or you'll go blind. Son! Son! Give me an end! Always. I fold. Too rich for my blood. Give me a... I'm Sergeant Reginald Cooper of the Royal Canada Menades. Give me a moan. Mm. Mm. Oh! Coffee is cold. This is Pandemonium. This is the incredible story of the night. All heck broke loose. Easy, Bob. Easy, Bob. Easy, Bob. Okay, Warden. Into the gas chamber. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Step right in. <laughs> Here at the House of Bad Pies, we got everything. Could I have the Three Stooges pie, please? Thank you. This must be the act of a maniac. Excuse me for saying this, but you must be very stupid. <laughs> Ow! What kind of treatment have you used with this man? <laughs> you are frightened of the night? Baloney. <laughs> This motion picture by any other name would still be Pandemonium. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rod Lott. Mike, do your Ray Charles. And making his debut in the booth is Mr. Gary Hill. I see you, Mr. Tooth Decay. 
On this special episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at Alfred Soule's Pandemonium. Released in 1982, the film stars Candy Azara as Bambi, a witness to the horrific murder of her high school cheerleading squad, who, years later, fulfills her lifelong dream of starting her own cheerleading camp at It Had to Be University. We will definitely be spoiling this film as we talk about it, so if you haven't seen Pandemonium, stop the podcast, pick up the gorgeous new Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray release, and come back after you have seen it. So, Rod, when was the first time you saw Pandemonium, and what did you think? This is a complicated question, because, and I know we're going to talk about these, so I won't go into detail. For decades, I confused Pandemonium, Wacko, and Hysterical. (laughs) All three horror parodies all came out about the same time, with very similar titles. So, as a kid, I had no idea which was which. I wasn't allowed to see any of them. Uh, So, I'm not sure which I knew first, you know, when I became aware of... Was Pee Wee Herman in this one? Was, you know, Andrew Dice Clay in this one? But it wasn't until Vinegar Syndrome put out Wacko and I was able to see it that I had that one cleared away. And then when Vinegar Syndrome put out Pandemonium last year, that's when I had that one squared away as well. So I think the only one I haven't seen is Hysterical from that trilogy. Hopefully they'll follow with that. But, you know, it's not a perfect film, but. There are some huge laughs in Pandemonium, and I've seen it three times now. There's still big laughs in it for me. And Gary, did I hear right that this was a first-time watch for you? Yeah, I've never heard it before until I did a little research of my own. And as far as, I think I've seen it before. You said, hey, let's do this, and I was interested in doing it. And the cast had me interested, and that's usually all it takes for me. is like, hey, uh, I'll watch this thing, and I don't think I wasted my 80 minutes or so. So I, I feel good about it. I think I saw this back on HBO probably mid, I guess it would have been mid-80s, early-ish 80s, because this came out in 82, and I know that it wasn't like today where things actually come out the same day that they come out theatrically. There had to have been a little bit of time in between there. I just remember watching this thing all the time and just absolutely loving it. So I was afraid that when I went back and watched it again for the show that I was going to just immediately have problems with it or no, this wasn't nearly as funny as I remember, but no, I still fucking love this movie. It's funny because you all know I'm not really a horror guy, so I don't really catch all of the parody of the horror stuff that they're doing, but I know enough and I I definitely know some of the other things that they're doing. And I love the actors that are in here. I mean, we've got like Phil Hartman in for five seconds and just all of these little roles and so many of them. And there were jokes that I was still able to quote today, sadly enough, that (laughs) they hit in 82 and they still hit in 2021. I just can't say enough nice things about this movie. Contrast to most other horror parodies, and even just parody movies in general, this is more of a overall genre parody versus a, here, let's get this title and this title and this title. Like, I think Carrie is the biggest, you know, obvious target in this one, other than just slasher films in general. Whereas, you know, more of the modern ones, like the scary movies, each of those, they have like three or four movies that they really hit on hard. 
So this is kind of an outlier in, in that where I think wasn't student bodies right before this. And I feel like it had more direct references. Yeah. I feel like that one might've been more Halloween esque. And then, yeah, you mentioned hysteria, which I think has some jaws references going on in it as well. But I mean, there are parodies in there, but it feels like it's more the comedy than the horror. You're right about the Carrie stuff though. Like if I said a, a parody of Carrie, you would think that something starts off in a shower and that there's a prom scene at the end, but it is so not that. It's just that Carol Kane has telekinesis and she's got an overbearing mother, but otherwise it's very different from Carrie. A lot of those parody films now, especially the scary movie films, and even I I tell people who love Spaceballs, and they they, they should love Spaceballs, but a lot of the jokes are dated, except for Maybe maybe the Reagan thing, which I still laughed at anyway. I, I know, yeah. The jelly beans thing, yeah. I think that was the worst-looking Reagan ever. He didn't look a thing like Reagan. He didn't look like <laughs> like Reagan very much, though he kind of had the voice, and I was glad that they didn't like rely on Rich Little to come in and dub five seconds worth of voice. <laughs> they couldn't afford him. Yeah, this movie, it looks... Very cheap. It looks like it was cheaply done, but I kind of like it for that because it's almost got like a homemade quality to it. Yeah, and it's like it's set at this big college, but yet there are like six or seven people there total. Well, it's summer break. Still. Yeah, just our our main six people and then Pepe, who's played by the incredible David Landers, and then Salt, his mother, who in the script Sometimes I thought they said that it was his wife, but then other times it was his mother, Salt and Pepe, and just such corny. I mean, I love how corny these jokes are. You are frightened of the night? Baloney. You are frightened of baloney? I have to go back to the beginning of the film because I think the initial kill with the javelin zooming through the air, which reminds me of like the police squad siren gag. Anyway, the javelin sort of, you know, going this way and that, and then skewering all the cheerleaders who just finished their halftime salute to vegetables, which you wonder, you know, what what on earth? And then, you know, the javelin skewers them, turns them into human shish kebab, pays that gag off. And uh, I just, I think that's hysterical perfectly lined up in a row to get to get speared and i love i love the the javelin gag because i know in one of the interviews that they, they do mention that one of the writers wrote rock roll high school and it reminded me of the paper airplane gag with uh, paul bartell and and that yeah right <laughs> and a, a javelin kill like two years before an actual slasher movie did it unless there's another one besides fatal games i think this beat it I have no slasher knowledge, so Come on, I will my... rely on you for that. <laughs> I mean, I've seen Halloween, and I've seen Halloween H2O, and I've seen, God help me, Rob Zombie's Halloween. But uh, I, I saw Jason X, and I saw Freddy vs. Jason, and I've seen the Freddy films, but I don't really consider those to be slashers. Fatal Game's definitely unique, and it needs a release, a, bad, a good release, really bad, I think. It's, it's definitely unique. Yeah, it needs a release, period. I love how the on-screen titles will tell us things like the exposition scene where 
Bambi lays it all out on the table for Pepe and his mother. And then when we get the introduction of our six victims that they, <laughs> that they clearly label that on screen that we're about to see our victims. And that's interesting too, because like victim number one is Carol Kane and she doesn't die in the movie. I thought they were jokingly telegraphing everything, but she's the final girl. Unless you count Tommy Smothers, too, but I don't. This what might have been the first time that I saw Judge Reinhold in something. Yes. This was before Beverly Hills Cop and before Ruthless People, which are the two roles that I really associate him with. Wasn't the first time I saw Mark McClure, because I had seen him as Jimmy Olsen in the Superman films. The girl that plays Sandy, who's kind of the... I don't want to call her a floozy, but she's very into status. This whole thing of how she won't ride with anyone who has uh, too old of a car or their car is in bad condition. And eventually, to your point, gets a, a ride to school from uh, Ronald Reagan. I know I've seen her in things before, but I couldn't remember exactly what it was. She's got a great look to her and just real good comic timing. Yeah, that's Deborah Lee Scott. And I remember her from... Two things. One, she was Fackler's wife in a couple of the Police Academy movies, the first nice. first couple. And then um, she was Hotsy Totsy on Welcome Back, Cotter. Oh, God, yes. Thank you. And also she was on, like, game shows a lot. And if you've, you've probably seen the clip of, like, her on Match Game. It's either – no, it's not Match Game. I think it's $10,000 Pyramid where her shirt, like, comes open during the show. And her breast kind of pops out. Candy. My shirt is white. Now, Candy, you have... I just flashed the light. All right. You have five clues. Manhattan songs. And this movie lives and dies by Candy Azara. She is fantastic in here as Bambi. I absolutely love her. I don't think I had... I mean, if I'd seen her before this, she certainly didn't register with me. I think she's great. And um, you mentioned the exposition scene. I think she does really well with that. That's like her big moment. I mean, she nails it. It's kind of like she didn't go on to, I mean, she works. She's a working actress, but she's not a name by any means, sadly. It's funny because I do a podcast about Barney Miller and I do one about the Twilight Zone reboot from the 80s. And within two months of each other, I saw her on Barney Miller, and I saw her on Twilight Zone 85. <laughs> so, yeah, she's great. She's got that kind of crazy voice. And then I like that they purposefully point out that she's got this Brooklyn accent. <laughs> and that she knows she's not good enough to be a cheerleader, so she's going to bathe in milk and only eat white bread. <laughs> and she also, uh, she looks older than all the other people she's with which i mean that makes sense because she's part of the initial class and then she's teaching our victims but she looks older but yet she acts kind of like on their same wavelength i mean she's really good at she plays most of this straight and she's really good at it oh blue darling you'd probably love me if i was a nice midwestern girl without this brooklyn accent I'll bathe in milk, eat white bread without the crust, and name our children Kent, Steve, and Marianne. 
I really love Terry Landrum in here as Mandy, who is obsessed with her teeth. And that was pretty much, I think, her part was the part that I remembered the most from watching this in the 80s. The whole idea of her doing the Mr. Tooth Decay thing that's uh, going on with the two teeth. Of course, her death is probably one of the most memorable deaths in the film, but she's great. I love her intro, the whole just bizarre thing of her dad being this game show announcer kind of thing, and Chip Jr., the the son, and then Chip Sr., the mom. <laughs> yeah. So that, that breakfast scene is bizarre, because at first you don't even know, like, who are they introducing? You know, because I thought it was the dad at first. Uh, but the little brother, the egg presenter, <laughs> uh, reminded me. He looks like Seth Green from uh, Can't Buy Me Love. Like the He so looks like Seth Green. I had to look him up just to see if he was. The froggy little brother. But yeah, she is Terry Landrum is her name. She is fantastic. She's from Oklahoma. I'm Oklahoma City. So I wanted to know more about her, but... She just like has vanished. This was her last movie. She's excellent. She's another person with kind of a crazy voice. I mean, I think they really did well to have Carol Kane with her voice, Landrum with her voice, and then Azara with her voice. It's just they're very much in their own registers with the way that they speak. One beautiful day, Mr. Shiny Tooth was walking down the lane. When all of a sudden he met Mr. Tooth Decay. Hello, Mr. Shiny Tooth. Hi, Mr. Tooth Decay. What are you doing today? Trying to avoid you. Well, it's not going to work. Poor Mr. DK. Beaten again by Mr. Shiny Tooth. And yeah, I love the whole gag of them being Candy, Mandy, Andy, Randy, and Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) Dandy. And they do that joke kind of twice. They have the intro, and then they do the one where it's like around the table, and they're talking about candy and candy that you eat. It's a bit much that second time. Well, I know the writers weren't very happy with the way that Mark McClure looks at the camera. And I know, and they said in the interview that he looked at the camera too many times. And I was like, really? He looks at the camera too many times? And then I rewatched it again yesterday. And when he's about to get down with Sandy and he's looking at, he turns around and looks at the camera real quick, right? As they're like getting onto the bed. I'll have to go back and watch that now. Because he's like the pro of the five or six teens, so to speak. Kind of works there, though, because he's easy to get some. It's like if you stare at the camera and say, yeah, I'm breaking that fourth wall, you know. Well, yeah, he's got that Leather Nun magazine to look at. <laughs> and Bondage Boys. Don't forget Bondage Boys. Anfield and Strength. <laughs> I do. Mark McClure, he's a great Jimmy Olsen. He has I what for me is the funniest line in the movie. They first get to the cheerleader camp, and he sees Sandy, and he says, There she is. I'm so in love, I know exactly what I'm going to say to her. Hello, bitch. And he just, he nails that. 
and Reinhold with his whole um his father going blind, Donald O'Connor as his father, and this whole masturbation thing that's going on in there when, <laughs> when they say, Where's Glenn at? Oh, he's probably shaving his palms and you see the, the little the little cuts on his palm with the with the toilet paper over it. <laughs> Donald O'Connor, his right Charles cracks me up. And like I laughed at that the first time, but I really laughed at it harder the second time because I knew by then it was Donald O'Connor. For some reason, that makes it funnier. Well, yeah, it's like everybody in here is somebody. Looking around at the patients and the asylum, we'll talk about the asylum in a second here, but to see some of these patients and I'm just like, okay, um, you know, the guy that plays the uh, male nurse who is doing this kind of um, mime routine, um, I had seen him before in uh, The Howling, Don McLeod, and then David McCharan, I think is how you say his name, who is the chicken patient. As soon as I saw him, I was like, oh my God, I've seen him before doing this chicken impersonation. And sure enough, he did it in Nice Dream. So he was like making a living acting like a chicken. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's still working, but he was doing like voice acting until just recently. And then Don, Mac- is it McLeod or McLeod? How have you said it? The, I think McLeod. The mime, he was in uh, this director's Tanya's Island as the monkey or the gorilla or whatever. <laughs> Whatever it was that uh, played opposite Vanity. Remember that weird movie? Has kind of like a corner on Acting Strange. And I love that we have these two red herrings. That we have the guy who escapes from the prison and the guy who escapes from the asylum. And we're supposed to think that it's one of these two guys that is hunting down these cheerleaders. But of course, it's a third person that we don't know at all. But yet we still follow that storyline of... The guy from the prison, it's the guy from the prison who cuts up people and makes them into furniture. Yeah. You know, from hearing that, you think Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you see some bone furniture, but when you get to the scene, it's literal furniture. And look, wow. Hey, Sarge, this is Trixie, the waitress at the Kit Kat Club. Right, Johnson. Recognize those legs anywhere. And the the guy that uh, runs the prison is uh, Gary Allen, who I just absolutely love Gary Allen. He just showed up in something else that I just watched recently. And then he was in my absolute favorite episode of Amazing Stories called Hell to Pay. Oh, yeah. Hello, Mr. Ballantyne, attorney at law. Do you have reasonable rates? I don't have any rates. This is my first case, but we can work something out. Oh, you wouldn't shoot me. I'm a victim myself. An innocent bystander. A victim of hair gone wrong. Okay, I just probably saw him recently in Fright Night Part 2, because I just watched that for the first time. And he's in that. But yeah, Hell to Pay. Wow. I had no idea he was in that. Of all the episodes of Amazing Stories, I think that's the one that stuck with me after all these years. Uh, we can't skip over, though, uh, you're talking about everyone is the name. Eileen Brennan as Carol Kane's mom, and she's credited at the end as a friend uh, at the end credits. Because she's not in the beginning. I didn't see her in the beginning credits. But she's, yeah, listed as a friend. Speaking of the asylum, you know, we have Eve Arden basically doing Grease. But here she gets killed by a fart, which is something. It is. And she's being led into the gas chamber by John Paragon, who most people 
maybe most people. I don't know if I can say that safely anymore. Most people would know him as Jambi from Pee-wee's Playhouse. Wishes granted. Long live Jambi. Totally. And we have Edie McClurg as Tab Hunter's mom. And uh, Sidney Lassick from One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest is in that Carol Kane scene with Eileen Brennan. I mean, this is just filled. I mean, we talked about Pee-wee. Or I'm sure we'll talk about him more. Paul Rubens. I mean, he's got a big, fairly big part in this. Opposite Tom Smothers as... Really, he's not in it that much. Tom Smothers is like this mounty policeman sort of thing. And he's set up to be kind of like the good guy. And I, he is, but he sort of disappears from the movie until the end. Yeah, he's on that case of the killer and the um, the loon from the uh, insane asylum more than he's at the actual cheerleader camp. I do like his horse, though, having like the, the circle around his eye like Petey from The Little Rascals. That has to be intentional. I have to admit that when I saw this as a kid, I did not realize that the horse was fake throughout so much of this. I thought it was a real horse 100% of the time. Okay, wait, you're telling me it's fake? <laughs> I seriously have no idea. I'm struggling to remember any scene which the horse is fake. I, Wow, I need to pay better attention. Pretty much when he's at the desk, uh-huh. the horse is fake. Well, that, like, that I can I see, would, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, that didn't register with me. I mean, it's really good special <laughs> effects. Either that or Smothers is so magnetic. Tom Smothers is in danger every single time he's on screen because Paul Rubens is almost always with him, and Rubens is just fucking fantastic. He's essentially doing Pee Wee Herman for most of his performance. For most of it. In fact, there's a line he says where he's talking to the horse, and he's like, break a hoof or something, Bob? And it's sort of like that... Is this something you could share with the rest of us, Amazing Larry? Yeah, he is so good, and... I I love the intro with him and that you can see over his shoulder that the calendar says it it has to be Thursday 12th. Yeah. On first watch, I didn't get the it had to be joke. It completely bypassed me that the university is called it. It had to be university, which obviously makes the joke. It had to be you. That totally escaped me. Well, I know the writers weren't too thrilled that they said it had to be Indiana first, mm-hmm. and then it had to be you, and I guess uh, it might have played better. That may be why. And then, yeah, you look at the uh, newspaper montage between the 1963 time and the now time, and you can see like it had to be the Gazette or whatever it is with all those headlines. And the headlines are great. I love when uh, the cheerleaders are killed um, in the shish kebab thing. It says that all Hungarians were questioned. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I didn't see that. I didn't notice that. Oh, it's just this movie is just joke upon joke upon joke. I mean, people will compare things to airplane movies, and that's usually comes up as being very unfair to the movies that aren't airplane but this one, I have to say, is pretty close with the number of jokes that they have in it. It, it has a pretty, I think, until the last 20 minutes, I think it hits pretty often. And the jokes, a lot of the times, really aren't necessarily funny, but they're delivered in a way that makes them hysterical. Kind of like how Leslie Nielsen, you know, but he played everything straight in Airplane. But like, you know, we mentioned Phil Hartman, his five seconds. He has like one line he's so perfect at delivering it this must be the act of a maniac 
comedy. Either that or a very large chef. He knows how to sell a line like that. That was Phil Hartman's gift, and the world is worse without him every day we go on. Yeah, I kind of wish that he had been in the Tommy Smothers part. I mean, I don't dislike Tommy Smothers, and I don't dislike his yo-yo personally, because I haven't seen it that much. But him playing that role even more straight and being even more... Because I think Phil Hartman... I'm sorry, Brendan Fraser, but I think Phil Hartman could be a really good Dudley Do-Right. Now, would he play like he played Vicky in a Sermon Axe Murderer? My name is John Johnson, but everyone here calls me Vicky. Will you please follow me? And for the record, I have nothing against either of the Smothers brothers, so I just want to clear that up. Like I said, I was worried that some of the jokes weren't going to hit or that I had outgrown this movie. And I have to say, the only time where I was just like, oh, this is a little dicey, was all of the Japanese jokes that they threw in there. (laughs) The Japanese tourists that are on Pepe's tour, and then the Japanese airline. The Air Tokyo. Which, the the stewardess there is um, another Pee Wee Herman, her name escapes, Miss Miss Yvonne. That's who, oh, that that's, was Miss Yvonne. Yeah, that's who the stewardess is. But the other, besides the Japanese jokes, the other bit that doesn't age as well, and not not as poorly as the Japanese, but it's it's Judge Reinhold talking to Terry Landrum, and first he says, "Let me guess your name, right?" Covers up her name tag, and then the other breast. Let me guess what school you're from, and then she goes away. <laughs> but yeah, that that t- that kind of thing doesn't uh, tends not to uh, get as many laughs today. I'm sure. Depending on who you watch this with. But I laughed. I didn't hear any complaints from my wife when I even was watching this the second time for the show. So I was glad for that. Because she doesn't tolerate dumb comedy pretty easily. But she was okay with this, I think. The line delivery that Judge Reinhold does in that particular scene that makes it still work for me. Well, even to the Air Tokyo bit where he's... Although that it takes a long time for him to show up to pay off that gag, but him floating outside the airplane is so absurd. But him saying, pull over, pull over, it's funny. It really is. I like that they don't go for, you know, we're talking about what movies they parody or what they pull from. And Carrie was, what, six years before this? I can't remember what year Carrie came out, but it wasn't that long before this. But then to go for parroting uh, Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy with that whole When I'm Calling You gag, I absolutely love that. And that seemed like something that our parents or maybe grandparents (laughs) would get as opposed to us. But, you know, Hey, anytime that we can, uh, you know, see some Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy when I'm calling you singing is absolutely fine by me. So other than that and Carrie, it's like, I feel like there's an exorcist bit a little bit. I don't know where the Carol Kane's eye beams come from, but there are audio gags of 2001 for certain. I feel like Jaws at some point, but other than that, they're not just they're just not that obvious. Oh, The Godfather! They have the horse's head, but that's not a horror film. Yeah, that was the only other one that I could think of was the horse's head, and that's where for me, Miles Chapin just shines in that whole thing where everything that he looks at makes him scream. <laughs> oh yeah, we haven't talked about that guy yet. I have to admit, among all the people, other than maybe Terry Landrum, I'm, he's who 
you know, I'm not really familiar with his work without looking it up, which I guess I could do. Well, it's kind of sad because one of the movies that he starred in and was a lot of it was a vehicle for him was Get Crazy. And that movie has been, you know, unofficially released for so many years. And now I think in 2021, it's finally going to get a proper release. But that was one. Uh, Amazon had a program where you could order VHS tapes and they would come in this plain yellow box. And it was always like, this is kind of questionable legality, what you're selling here. But I'll take it anyway. So that was the first time I saw Get Crazy. And then they had another one that was like, um, I want to say Michael McKean was in it. It was a, like an earthquake movie, but it was a, a, a funny earthquake movie. Um, and that was the only way I could see that, too. Cracking Up, by chance? Cracking Up, thank oh, you. Oh, that's a terrible movie. Yeah, Amazon Prime is what their yellow boxes became <laughs> because you've got so many things of questionable uh, licensing out there. But hey, more power to them. Can we talk about the my second favorite scene in the movie? Actually, it's actually I think it's the best overall scene, and that's the House of Bad Pies. I don't know why it's called the House of Bad Pies if that's a reference to something, but the waitresses, the twin waitresses, Crystal and China. As their their name in real life are Candy and Randy, which is kind of funny considering the the joke we get. But their comic timing as the waitresses is hysterical. It's like the jokes just get lined up, kind of like plates at a diner that they would carry out. And um, I I wish they had been uh, really I wish they had their own movie to themselves. <laughs> but that scene is so funny. I think the the menu real quick thing that gag and the. Yeah, that was, that was it was all you can eat for a dollar. The guy's like, "I'll take that." She brings over this plate of like six hamburgers. He takes one bite. She's like, "Okay, that's all you can eat for a dollar." <laughs> Amazing. I love when they look at each other and they use each other for mirrors. <laughs> yeah. It's so stupid and so fast, but I'm just like, "Okay, it works for me." <laughs> and I missed that. I go back and look for that now, see. Like I said, it's just kind of a throwaway. They turn, they kind of primp their own hair but they're both doing it at the exact same time and the way that their hair is styled it goes down on the left on one side and on the right on the other so when they look at each other it's like a mirror version pretty nice i like that it's definitely is one of those movies that you could watch it just for the background just to see what you miss and speaking of that restaurant michael tucci is the guy who comes out the of the beginning like with a hurt stomach or whatever I know him from It's Gary Shandling's show. He was the the neighbor. But again, it's like almost everyone in this is someone. Well, the guy who's got the windsock for a head. That's, that's, uh, I think that's Abby Rose Smith who wrote Falling Down. uh, What? The Joel Schumacher film. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. And he just showed up in something else that I was watching recently. And I was just like, oh, hey, it's, it's him. I remember him from Tapeheads as Mr. G, but I had no idea he was a writer. He hasn't written that much, at least that much that's gotten actually produced. Huh. But yeah, he he wrote that script, and um, he's he's on the episode talking about uh, how he wrote the script. He wrote that and uh, Car Fifty Four. Where are you? Oh, I'm, he should have stopped. <laughs> Which was directed by one of the guys that directed uh, tape heads. So there you go. Yeah, that's not it. It all comes around. Car 54 
that was one that sat on the shelf forever when Orion went, I think it was Orion Pictures, went bankrupt. And it finally came out at a dollar theater here. And uh, it was not even worth a dollar. I mean, that was a painful movie. I think I read the script of that, and it was actually pretty good. I can believe that. I want to say it was it was uh, Bill Fishman who directed it, and he knew how to direct comedy. I think he told me a little bit of a story about that when he was on the Tapeheads episode, and I, I think that it might have gotten a little little bit butchered. Oh, definitely. It's that's one of those movies that just screams of behind the scenes fiddling. Man, I don't hate that cast either. I remember watching it at least once on probably Showtime or something. The original show was hilarious. I used to watch old reruns of that on Nick and Knight all the time, and I definitely enjoyed it. So it had a lot of potential. One thing I wanted to say about Mandy, uh, the toothpaste girl, her death with the, I don't know, is it a drill or whatever that foams all that toothpaste into her mouth. So I read somewhere that that caused, I don't know if it's a ratings issue or they had to cut some of it, or maybe it was on the vinegar syndrome extras but i remember something vaguely about that being just seen as sexual obviously because you know it's oral but (laughs) but that that caused some problems i don't take it like that i just i just think it's a really inventive and funny way to go the fact that the drill was sparking and smoking i'd imagine that that (laughs) boiled all the toothpaste that was in her gullet hilariously but you know that couldn't have been easy for her but she did it. She sold it. All the deaths are just so silly. I love that Sandy gets the megaphone shoved through her. You don't see it, but that she comes into the uh, into the room with the megaphone through her chest. <laughs> they poor Candy's just yelling through the megaphone. Are you all right? Or I forget the line. Carol Kane is great in that. I've mentioned it before, but I think the the last twenty to twenty five minutes for me suffers. And it's because all these characters by then are gone. You know, they're so good when they're on screen. And Judge Reinhold is great. Well, everyone's great. But then they're all gone. And unlike slasher movies, don't even have characters as unique as these. where They're mostly interchangeable and forgettable. And here they're, they're well introduced. And they each have a personality. And something distinguishing them despite their sound-alike names. And the performances are all good. And it's almost too good because the movie, I think, suffers when they all go away. Well, I want to say in the screenplay that we read that I want to say Bambi lives a little bit longer and she's more towards the end of the film. So it's like her and Candy are around for a while and then she does finally bite it. But I think she goes a little too fast in the movie. I think she's like, what, maybe third or fourth killed? And I would think that she should be one of the last people standing, because this really is Bambi's movie. So then when she goes, it shifts to Candy. And I like Candy a lot, though I prefer mints. But yeah, it's a little too much to just be weighing on Carol Kane for that last 20 minutes. I I agree with you. I'm glad that they bring up Green a few times, the Tab Hunter character. They bring him up, but really, he's there at the beginning, he's there at the very end, and so it's like we kind of forget about him um, unless we're really invested in the movie. Luckily, I am, but it's like there might be some people when he shows back up at the end going, who is this guy again? (laughs) 
okay, so I've seen this three times. And on both of the subsequent viewings, I forget about Tab Hunter. I forget that he's in it at the beginning. And then by the end, it's like, I don't remember who the killer was. <laughs> so both times it surprised me. It's, it's like the slasher genre in general. They do it. People would show up in those films as, okay, there's a murder or something random that happens at the beginning. And also the killer at the end is, this is the sister of the person that got murdered in the beginning of the film. You know, that's the kind of the tap hunter thing reminds me of. Cause I've seen so many stupid slashers. When I say stupid, I sat through 80 minutes of that. I'll watch it again probably, but here we are, you know. I had to watch uh, – there's a slasher movie that takes place at a camp that's not Friday the 13th. The Burning? And there's – The Burning. Thank you. With George Costanza's mm-hmm. in that, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I think that was one where it's just like, who is this person? <laughs> <laughs> what? And luckily I watched it twice, but I was just like, what is this? Who uh, – how – so yeah, I can see Tab Hunter being that. I mean, they try to build him up by having – like the coach and his mother. I think also in the screenplay, there's more of that back and forth between the coach and his mother. I actually thought that the coach was his dad for a long time. I didn't realize that the coach was his coach. And yeah, there's a real, like you kind of get it in the movie of like the coach is all supportive of him. And then uh, eating, I called him green. I'm sorry. He's blue Grange. Uh, And then eating McClurg as, as blue's mom is like, no, no, my son has to be safe. So there's like a real tension between them in the script that I don't think we get as much of in the movie. And I want to say there's maybe another scene of them together and arguing. Now is blue Grange. Is that a, is that making fun of something? I'm not a sports person. I don't know. (laughs) It seems like it should be with that name. It's an odd, odd name, but this, I'm glad it's tab hunter. You know, being born in 1971, I think the first thing I ever saw Tab Hunter in was Grease. And this is kind of, I guess this is right, essentially right after Grease. Or no, or was it Grease 2? It is is Grease 2. I prefer that one. (laughs) Yes, I do too. So this was around that same time. This is that time in his career, like after he was outed and where he really, he's no longer the leading man. He has to get parts to where he's essentially making fun of himself which is sad in a way but i think he does it very well yeah this was for me i think the first time i I saw him was i didn't see polyester but i remember seeing the review of polyester on um siskel and eber same and i was just like wow what is this and they talked all about odorama and i was just like wow i really i can't wait to see this movie and of course it was years before i was actually finally able to after this it was lust in the dust was the thing that i might have actually seen him in first or second and i don't remember lust in the dust being very good no and i think that was one that i confused as a john waters film you know, it's before I really, really knew who John Waters was, just because it had Tab Hunter and Divine. Tab Hunter, he didn't do a whole lot after this. I really want to see that documentary on him, Tab Hunter Confidential, but I have not gotten around to it. Well, it was directed by a friend of the show, so I highly recommend really? it. Really? Well, you have to say that. No. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> if Jeffrey ever makes a bad film, I will I will say that it's a bad film. But so far, everything that I've seen from him has been fantastic. And I look forward to his next documentary, which is supposed to be all about showgirls. Awesome. Yeah, Jeffrey Schwartz. I've seen his work, and he is good. Yeah, his doc on uh, William Castle is just fucking fantastic. Yes, and I saw the Alan Carr when he did. That was great. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'll have to check out tab hunter asap i will admit something publicly that something people don't know about me i don't even think my wife knows this about me so this is <laughs> when it's it's the mandy and the tooth the toothpaste bit no actually her whole oral hygiene obsession so 20 years ago uh at the time in my career i was a f- working freelance uh, doing copywriting and things like that. One of the assignments I got was doing an instructional video for, I, I feel like it was the American Dental Association or something. That It was like a video for kids about brushing your teeth. And they wanted to, it was a superhero who I did not come up with named Captain Supertooth. And I was reminded of that every time I see this because her obsession with her teeth brings me back to things I learned writing this video, which I wish I had a copy of. Hi, friends. Captain Supertooth here with a super tip just for you. I always thought that you're supposed to brush your teeth three times a day. And I'm sure Mandy does it like 17. But a dentist recommend twice. Did you guys know that? Only twice a day. And here I thought it was every time you eat. I don't want to correct you, but I believe she says 10 times a day is how much she she uh, brushes her teeth. You've seen this more than I have. I love this whole thing of her saying that uh, brushing your teeth couldn't cure world hunger because every time she brushes her teeth, somebody then offers her something to eat. It so reminded me of that contestant on, I don't know if it was Miss America or where it was, who was saying that, uh, what was it? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps. And uh, I believe that our education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries. So we will be able to build up our future for our children. She became like a meme after that. And she's even in that uh, pork and beans video from uh, Weezer. (laughs) The other dental fact I have to share is that you're not supposed to push hard when you brush. I did hear you're supposed to use a very soft brush. I always thought that a hard brush would be better, but apparently a soft brush is what you're supposed to use. Mandy probably was really effing up her gums, to tell you the truth. All right, we are going to take a break and play back a trio of interviews. First, we'll hear a little bit more of Miles Chapin from the interview he gave on our episode about Milos Forman's hair. After that, we'll hear from director Alfred Soule. And last but not least, we'll hear from the screenwriters of Pandemonium, Jamie Klein and Rich Whitley. And we'll be back with all of that right after these brief messages. Join me, Jamie Benning, on the Film Inventories podcast, particularly if you enjoy stories like designer Nilo Rodis Jamiro convincing George Lucas to push him around to help gain the support of his crew on the ailing Howard the Duck. 
Blam! The door opens. It's George. Everybody gasps. George makes a beeline to me. I'm literally back against the wall. Or hear puppeteer Tim Rose's emotional story behind that iconic Admiral Ackbar shot in Return of the Jedi. I believe that war is something to be proud of, but not to celebrate. Or how Star Wars editor Paul Hirsch tackled cutting so many successful films. The thing that I learned from working with the Palmen is that tension depends on a clock. You need to have the sense that time is running out. Maybe Oscar-winning sound designer Mark Mangini's insightful chat about his work on Blade Runner 2049. Not a, not a single sound from the original Blade Runner in the new film. A great deal of inspiration. That's the Filmumentaries podcast with me, Jamie Benning. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of the Projection Booth, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code PROJECTION. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And for one lucky listener every week this month, January 2020, I am giving away a full year's membership to Film Movement Plus. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ProBoothCast.com for more information on how you can get this great prize. Hello, this is Mark Begley, the host of Wake Up Heavy Recollections of Horror. Wake Up Heavy is a show where I talk about movies that blew my mind as a kid. Things like Phantasm. This morning shots are bullshit. Tourist Trap. You are so pretty. Dead and Buried. Welcome to Potter's Bluff. And Halloween 3. A joke on the children. Guests have included friend of the show and host of the Projection Booth podcast, Mike White. Genre film journalists, Anya Stanley, Jerry Smith, Sam Panico, and Simon Fitzjohn. Every once in a while, I even convince my own daughter, Cleo, to join me. That's me. (laughs) Usually, though, it's just me, a mic, and my memories of some really wonderful horror films. So come check us out, wakeupheavy.com, soundcloud.com slash wakeupheavy, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, anything can happen when you wake up heavy. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, you're going to hear the rest of our interview that we did with Miles Chapin. You can hear the beginnings of this over on our episode about Milos Forman's hair, which was released a little bit earlier this year. Enjoy. I mostly associate you with a lot of comic roles, especially something like when you were in Pandemonium. Yeah, yeah, no, that was a lot of fun, that one. Did you ever do any stand-up? Well, I did a movie where I played a stand-up. <laughs> That's as close as I ever came. In the course of, of preparing for that movie, I spent a lot of time in uh, comedy clubs and uh, got thoroughly scared about that work. That is, I mean, next to writing and having a blank page staring you in the face, Stand up is the hardest thing in the world. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And in the course of shooting that movie, 
Um, you know, I, I did several stand-up routines and, you know, I helped write them and helped craft them. But of course, every audience I played them for would, were paid extras. So they were paid to laugh. <laughs> Must have made you feel good. Well, sure. It felt good, but it was a little unreal, you know. But Howie Mandel was in that movie, so I got to know Howie, you know, and I and I went to see him and, and you know, saw him and, you know, do his act and stuff. And a lot of the other actors were stand-up comedians. And, and you know, and then I, I, I dated this girl who worked at the, a comedy club in New York for a while, so I spent a lot of time hanging out with comics. And, I mean, to this day, I just admire that that skill. It's just, it's, it's amazing, you know. But I, I never did it, and I never really had desire to do it. I just, you know, I'm much more, I like acting. I mean, I, I thank you for saying that you think of me playing comedy because I like to think that that's what I do, but that's not all that you do. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier for an actor to be a comedic comedic than it is for a, a com- com- comedian to be an actor. You know, I mean, good acting is good acting period. If you have a sense of comedy, you can play comedy, you know, look at somebody like De Niro, whoever thought he could play comedy, but you know, he's brilliant in those comedies. He's very, very funny, but he's, a- he's, he's acting, you know, it's not that different from his, other roles it's you know it's a, it's a fine line you know but that's the art of acting that's the craft i do want to ask you about here but selfishly i want to ask more about pandemonium because that is a favorite sure. of mine and really? I was, yeah I, I saw it when i was growing up and just something about it it's still funny to me i was very lucky i got a chance to talk to alfred soul a few years ago yeah really? i just really, really like that film Alfred, yeah, I, I didn't know Alfred beforehand, but I did know the producers. One of the producers of that movie has the same last name as I do. And actually, we worked together twice. And a lot of people think he's my brother. Doug Chapin does have a brother named Brian Chapin, who I went to PCS with. But Doug and Brian and I, I mean, we're cousins, of course, because we have the last name, but we're not that close. But Doug uh, produced Pandemonium. And that's one of the reasons I'm in it, because... He was also a personal manager, and Carol Kane was his manager. And I think Carol was a fan of French postcards. So that was one of the ones. I mean, that was an offer. That wasn't like, come and audition for this movie. It was like, would you like to do this movie? And uh, I, I just thought the script was insanely funny. And yeah, yeah. And, and, and the cast. I mean, Deborah Lee Scott, I knew her work. Carol Kane, of course. And then when we were shooting it, I mean, like every day there was like some celebrity on the set. I mean, Joe D'Alessandro, Donald O'Connor, Kay Ballard. It was just like... Oh my God! You know who who do we meet? Who do we work with today? Tommy Smothers, Pee Wee Herman. I mean, I'll tell you a funny Tommy Smothers story. The first day that I mean, that was a fairly low budget movie, right? So instead of having like everybody having mobile homes and dressing rooms, they rented like the biggest mobile home they could, and that was for everybody. So we had a little honey, the little honey wagon where we could change clothes, and then we had this big mobile home where we could hang out. Well, the first day that Tommy Smothers was working, my call was like two o'clock in the afternoon. He was supposed to work in the morning and then we were working that afternoon. So I got there a little early because I wanted to meet Tom Smothers because I was like such a huge fan of his. You know, I grew up with those records, right? So I go into our little green room trailer and I'm sitting there and I see out the window that Tom Smothers, you know, who's wearing a Mounties costume. He comes out of the soundstage. He walks directly to the green room. He comes in, takes off his hat. He sort of nods at me and goes, huh. And I, I'm just sitting there watching him. And he goes over to the refrigerator. It's like one o'clock in the afternoon. Opens up the freezer, pulls out a bottle of uh, Stolichnaya, pours himself a shot, puts it on the table in front of me, sits down across from me, takes a drink, looks at me. And the first thing he said to me was, and I quote, I tell you, kid, you get to my age, you find a little booze helps you get through the day. <laughs> 
I love that. I love that. And I was just like, okay, Tom Smothers. Yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. That was fun. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a little awkward, that movie. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, it sort of, it doesn't move like comedy. I mean, there's something just off about it, but uh, the writers, uh, Jamie Klein, Richard Whitley, they're still friends of mine. You know, I'd love to see, I mean, Judge Reinhold was one of the treasures in that movie. I'd never heard of him beforehand and he's just wonderful, a wonderful actor. What a treasure he is and what a great guy he was to work with, you know. And Mark Metcalf, too. He was a lot of fun, but I haven't seen Mark in a while. I kept up with Judge for a while, but we've since fallen off. I haven't seen him. I'm, you know, if you talk to him about that movie, tell him I say hi. We're Facebook buddies, but, you know, not, you know, arm's length Facebook buddies. I want to be respectful of your time, but do you mind if I ask you about what your experience was like on Get Crazy? Get Crazy. I love Get Crazy. It's one of my favorite movies, and I love Alan Arkish. Um, in fact, you know, I think Kino Lorber is doing a, um, a release of Get Crazy. Yeah. And Alan has asked me if, you know, if I would uh, help do the, um, uh, the, what do you call it? You know, the, the, the commentary with him. And I said, I said, oh, absolutely. I would love to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was another movie where it's like, where do we go today? What are we, you know, what are we doing today? Oh, today I get to work with Fabian and Bobby Sherman. Great. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Fabulous. Hi, Bobby. Hey, Fabian. You know, I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, and, and Alan, Alan is great. I mean, the story of that movie is really sad and, and really, I mean, do you, do, do you know Alan Arkish? I mean, have you, have you talked to him about it? Yeah, we uh, did an episode on rock and roll high school a few years ago. He's a fantastic guy. Yeah, he really is. And, and, you know, I think he, he had a, that was a sore spot for him, that movie. Um, justifiably. And did you ever see, you know, trailers from hell, you know, that website? Right. Yep. Well, he tells them of what happened and, and the studio taking it away. And basically they had to lose money on it. I mean, it was one of those things where they weren't going to make a lot of money on it. So they just dumped it third week in August with just a terrible marketing campaign. But I'm telling you, I screamed it. um, I'm on the board of a charitable organization that's sort of a preservation group for Greenwich village. And we screamed it as a benefit and had a little panel discussion uh, from people that had a, a background uh, on the, uh, at the film Maurice. That was the last time I saw the movie and it really holds up. In fact, I think it's even funnier now than back then. It's full of in jokes and surprises and just little weird things, you know, and it's just, it's, it's just fun. I mean, that movie is just so much fun, you know, the thing that always sticks in my mind is uh, Malcolm McDowell having the conversation with this penis. It takes a lot of people to figure out what's going on with that. Right, right. What's going on? Well, you know, he was he he was not originally cast in that role. The guys that wrote the title song uh, called Sparks, this Ron and Russell male were their names. One of them was supposed to play that role. And it turns out that he just didn't have the chops. He just couldn't do it. So Malcolm McDowell was one of those, you know, come on to the set. Hey, everybody, you know, Ron Mayo is no longer with us. Oh, yeah? Who's going to replace him? <laughs> Malcolm McFucking Dowell. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. I mean, that's the kind of thing when you shoot in L.A., that's the kind of thing that happens. And honestly, a lot of breaks. Cause people are always waking for, you know, big breaks. Every, every actor gets a break if you're hanging there long enough. A lot of the really big breaks come when just that happens. You know, like Dudley Moore, you know, in 10. It was supposed to be George Siegel and he broke his leg. And so they needed to replace him like in 36 hours. And somebody said, oh, is Dudley Moore available? Yeah, he's in town. Get him on the set tomorrow morning. He's got the lead in 10. And that gave him a career. I mean, foul play, put him on people's maps, on, on the radar screen. And, you know, that was, he, was, he was like the leading man. 
in comedy for like 10 years. Arthur, all these movies, you know, big break because George Siegel broke his leg. You know, this. Next up, you're going to hear from the director of Pandemonium, Alfred Soule. I'm very curious how you got into show business and especially how you came to make Deep Sleep. I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. I went to, I graduated high school in Patterson, New Jersey. And then, and then I went to school at the, the Academy of Arts in Newark, New Jersey. And then I also, and then I, I went to Europe and I studied design and architecture. And then that's what got me back to Patterson. And then I wanted to, you know, I started making films. Uh, I had a little Bolex camera and I started making my own movies. I was an architect designer then. I really wanted to make a, a movie, but I couldn't raise enough money. So uh, I got my friends involved and we raised enough money, $25,000 to make Deep Sleep. 25000 That's just so incredibly cheap. I don't know how that was back in 1972 when you made it, though. It was it was a lot of, in those days, it was a lot of money. So but what I realized that I just, I was going to make this porno, I, what I realized is that I definitely didn't want to make a porno, but I, it was making a movie and it was a way to make a film. I had read that uh, Francis Ford Coppola and a couple other directors started making X-rated movies and that's how they got started. And I thought, well, at least I'm making a movie. So I made Deep, Deep Sleep and then from Deep Sleep, uh, Alice, Sweet Alice came along and that's what got me to California. Tell me about that transition for you and, and moving out to California. How did Alice Sweet Alice come to you? Or I mean, because you're listed as a writer. Did you come up with the idea? I wrote the screenplay with uh, Rosemary Rippo, who is my neighbor. I mean, I had no I had no friends in the entertainment business. This is all this all transpired with friends and support support of all friends in my neighborhood. Even Deep Sleep, when uh, when I made the movie, I had everybody. In t- that's where I, that's why I got in so much trouble because I had everybody in the town in the movie, and uh, you know, and then the shit hit the fan. There's a great podcast that tells the whole story about Deep Sleep, and I just actually I just signed a deal that they're going to do a docudrama on Deep Sleep now. Oh, excellent. The company's called Concordia, and I think they have a deal with Netflix, and, and they just hired a director couple, and they're going to make this docudrama about the making of the movie Deep Sleep and what happened. I wonder if it'll finally get a good release, because the version I saw is just really beat to shit. You saw Deep Sleep? Yeah, it's been a few years, but yeah, it took a lot to track down. I, I don't have a copy of it, and I, you know, and when I... You know, I'm amazed that I made it actually when I saw, actually saw a little bit of it about a, prior to making this deal to do the docudrama. Uh, so um, um, I didn't realize, I looked at it and I said, did you do that? It was, I stepped, I stepped out of my body for a second. Apparently, I don't know, it's, it's out there. I guess if there was a print in Europe or something, I don't know. But anyway, it made a lot of money, and then the government came after me, and uh, they took it all away. And I almost went to jail for 40 years. So how did you decide to come up with the story for Alice Sweet Alice? Well, Alice Sweet Alice was a truly labor of love. I, I, I'm Catholic, and it was just the mask. You, you take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, supposedly, 
And and so I thought, what would be interesting that a, a girl got murdered during her first Holy Communion? And that was kind of the genesis of the making of uh, actually the first first movie originally was titled Communion Communion, and then they changed it to Alice Sweet Alice. These days, a lot of people know it as this is one of Brooke Shields' first roles, if not her first role. It was her first role, and I it, that's a. You know, they when I started casting in New York, Brooke's mother came to me one day and she brought Brooke in and she showed me the photographs and she was just beautiful. And uh, so she was a perfect choice and they were so nice that they know I didn't have a lot of money and they were just, they were both wonderful, wonderful people. Can you tell me what it was like working with uh, Alfonso de Noble? Alfonso, I love Alfonso. He's a great character. He made a, he made everyone laugh. He was just one of the nicest, nicest, sweet man, man, man ever. I'm sorry he passed away. You know, he's a story within himself. You know, he, someone introduced me to Alfonso. At the time, he was, he used to dress up as a priest and hang around graveyards. And when people would see him dressed as a priest, they would say, Father, can you say a prayer for my dead one? And then they would give him money for saying a prayer. And that's one one of the ways he made a living. Amazing guy. Amazing guy. Stayed in touch with Alfonso until, until, until he passed away. He, you know, he 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 had a lot of problems, and so he tells this great story. How he he wanted to commit suicide, so he drank a lot of whiskey, pulled over at a curb on a highway, drank a whole bunch of he took a whole bunch of sleeping pills, and he drank a lot of booze, and he you know he was intended on ending his life. So apparently he he fell asleep thinking he was going to die, and he woke up and there was a policeman tapping on his window, and he thought he his first reaction was, oh my God, God the God is the policeman. He thought he was in heaven and God was the police. He was so big, the amount of sleeping pills didn't work. It didn't, it didn't stop his heart. It just stopped him. And they just put him to sleep for about, and I'm sure he slept for many hours on the side of the road. What did uh, Alice Sweet Alice do for you? I mean, because from what I recall, it was a pretty big success. It's amazing how it has. It still has the life of its own. It's on. It's, it's been chosen by AFI's 100 best horror, uh, horror movies ever made, and people are rediscovering it. And now they re-released it. Um, so it's funny how people are, you know, discovering the movie and contacting me and telling me how much they love it. Is that what ended up leading you to Tanya's Island? I'm a little disappointed in Tanya's Island because it wasn't the movie I wanted to make. Originally, we were going to do the, you know, the Beauty and the Beast, and the Beast becomes the Man, and the Man becomes the Beast, and that was the original story, and it was very a very simple story, and we shot it in Puerto Rico. But what happened was uh, apparently it was big, the the producer of the film raised money on a Canadian tax shelter, so they turned them they turned the tax shelter down because it didn't have enough Canadian content. So we had to reshoot the whole thing and rewrite it and as we were shooting it. So it turned out to be not not the movie I really wanted to make, especially the part. Do I remember right? Did Rick Baker do the ape effects for that? Rick Baker did the – yes, he did. And he was really helpful. But the problem with the uh, – first of all, he when I, I we were in Puerto Rico waiting for the monkey for the monkey costume. I'm sorry, the gorilla costume. And uh, we were waiting and waiting. And when it finally arrived, first of all, we had no money. And I was so appreciative that Rick, Rick did it for me. So when it arrived, what, the first thing I noticed is that it had long hair. I thought, <laughs> this, this gorilla is going to look like a drag queen with all his long hair. So we were, we were cutting it. But all the, all the apparatuses that work the face and the body, the, the, the extension was only about three feet long. So... We had to really control what he did, and the guy who dressed up in the gorilla suit, 
because it was so hot in Puerto Rico, he would he would always he was a great guy, and, and he uh, he would pass out from time to time, and really did his best to stay in the costume and give us some. I only had him for like five minutes a day because of the heat. What was it like to work with uh, Vanity? She was terrific. She was really, really sweet. And uh, I found her. She was a waitress in, in Canada. And uh, her boyfriend was a photographer, and that's how we met. And, uh, and I thought she was just visually perfect. She was just beautiful. Did that one end up getting much of a release when it came out? It was a mess. It didn't. It, it really, the movie was an absolute mess. And it was a shame because the original story was so simple and and the movie I wanted to make. And uh, but listen, the buck stopped at me. I was the director and the writer, so I'm responsible for, for that movie. I take full responsibility. How did you end up getting tapped for Pandemonium? Because that one, each film that you do seems so completely different from everything else, and that one seems even more different than the rest of them. Well, I'm not making excuses, but that was another disaster. I couldn't find work, so I was on my way. I was on my way back in New Jersey when I got a I got a call that they wanted to meet me to do this to this movie. Originally, it was called Friday the Thirteenth. So I was broke. I knew nothing about comedy, and again, I'm not making excuses. I you know I I took the job. I directed the movie, and I did the best I could. And again, uh, I'm responsible for the movie. That's for sure. Whatever the end result was. The only the only thing I enjoyed about that movie is because I do nothing about comedy. I went to the Groundling Theater and I was and I made friends with P.B. Herman, Elvira, and all the all, all the actors in the Groundling Theater and Phil Hartman, and we became really good friends. And I uh, and I helped they helped me make that movie because again I had no experience in comedy whatsoever. We all got along great. As a matter of fact, after the movie, Paul, myself, and Phil Hartman. We wrote a script together. We had, we pitched a movie and we wrote a script together. And it was me, Paul, Phil, and the, th- the three of us every day writing together, which is a great experience. It was about gypsies stealing all the bowling balls of the, of, in the world. It was pretty funny. You talk about not making excuses for pandemonium, but I love it. I think it's hilarious. And I just watched it again recently, and I still found it just as funny. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Like I said, I, I didn't have that much experience with comedy, so I was doing all the things like looking into the camera, spinning the camera around, uh, everything and anything I could, like the flying spear, the javelin. I did I did every there's. I just kind of did it in a kind of a slapstick kind of way visually. Talked about the people from the Groundlings, but everybody in there is just so terrific. I know, and I was so lucky. I mean, you know, it was funny because I met these people, met everyone, and they were just so on board. They liked me, and they were willing to do it. I mean, let's face it. I killed Eve Arden, one of the biggest Hollywood stars of the 40s and 50s. I mean, she she's worked with every major director, every every major movie star, and I killed her with a fart. Today, I keep on, I still think about it. And she was such a good sport. And I kept thinking, why is she doing this? Why is she doing this? But she was terrific. And it was so nice to meet her. That was one of the best things about Pandemonium. I got to, really, I got to meet a lot of old Hollywood celebrities. I gave Judge Reinhold his first job. I gave Pee Wee Herman his first movie. It was really you know, interesting to find people who, who were really talented. I was just exploring all those casting ideas. And, uh, you know, and, they, and the producers really were really very nice to me. And anything I was exploring, they were very open to any ideas I had. And it was, it was really great. And it's funny, later on in years, I, I designed 
Halloween Town for Disney Channel. And Debbie Reynolds was in Halloween Town. I don't know if you know about the Disney Channel's Halloween Town, but she played a witch and she was Queen Witch of Halloween Town. Anyway, I got to meet Debbie Reynolds and we stayed friends for a long time. As a matter of fact, she was going to do a museum. She had all this movie, you know, she collected all this, all this movie memorabilia and we were in the process of building a museum when she passed away. I am not that familiar with Halloween Town, but I have a friend who's a little younger than I am who always talks about that movie. Apparently, it was a big thing for people of a certain age to see that movie. Right. And it plays every, you know, Disney plays it every Halloween. I think I did three of them. Do you have any other memories of working on Pandemonium? What was it like working with your writers? It was strained. It was my first studio production, and I was kind of a fish out of water. I didn't know how the system worked. I mean, I was an independent filmmaker who made his own movies and kind of like, I was kind of an auteur in a, in a way. I, it was a whole learning process myself. I mean, working with system. And I didn't realize that the writers had that much power. You know, we were sort of bumping heads for a while. I didn't realize until I was watching it again that the horse was not a real horse sometimes. I had never caught that when I was a kid. <laughs> It was fun to watch to see Pee on work with that horse too. It was really fun. It was and Carol Kane. It was, and we had Tommy Smothers. We had a great cast. Yeah, what was Tommy Smothers like to work with? You know how they say comedians have a dark side. Tommy Smothers has a very dark side. I know that Candace Azara is really good because I've seen her in a lot of things, but just I forgot how much she works in the movie. She's the best. We had so much fun making that movie. We really did. Everyone was terrific. We had problems like any movie, and I had I had problems because, like I said, the whole studio system was so new to me, and uh, I was really a fish out of water. You know, I, I enjoyed the casting so much, and we, we found a lot of great people. And, it, you know, it, for what it was, it turned out great, I thought. Can you tell me about uh, Cheeseball Presents? I forgot all about that one and then it turned up on my radar again recently after uh pandemonium i was friendly with the groundlings we like i said i was writing a screenplay with phil hartman and, and Wee herman paul rubens uh we were writing a screenplay and we had the, and i had this idea of this kind of comedy show we shot on 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 tape with all these skits and so uh, we kind of we developed it, and we we it, cheese ball was the end result. How did you make that transition from doing the directing and the screenwriting into doing the production design? I made the transition because it was it was it, the truth is I'll be very honest with you is that survival in Hollywood. I couldn't get work as a director. I I worked for for about thirteen years as a writer. With my, my writing partner was Paul Manette, and Paul passed away, and I was so, uh, you know, Paul, we were like left hand and right hand. We were really, we really worked well together. I really wasn't good at writing by myself, so I did a lot of soul searching, and I, so I had a friend who was doing a movie, and she, and I was actually designing her house for her. She allowed me to work on a film as a set decorator and production designer, and that's how I got my career started. You know, I was... I, I made some good friends in Hollywood, and they really helped me along the way. She was actually the, you know, Karen Danaher, she was actually the producer of Under Siege. What are some of your favorite things that you have done production design on over the years? 
Uh, one of my favorite things is Castle. Eight seasons of Castle. It was, it was just a joy. How about you? How have you been? What have you been doing during the pandemic? I wrote a screenplay. I'm sending that around. I, like I said, I just made the deal for Deep Sleep documentary. Okay. Trying to keep busy. Some days just bored out of my mind. I'm 77 years old now, and I'm trying to definitely keep busy, as busy as I can. I'm glad that you're still writing, and I really am looking forward to seeing what they do with Deep Sleep. That sounds amazing. Me too. I'm so anxious. They hired us. They're not husband and wife, they're, but they're partners in their, to, to, to direct and write and direct this, the docudrama, and I'm so excited. I'm, gonna go, I'm going down that memory lane with, when, we, when they, start to, they start production of the docudrama. So uh, there's plenty of stories there for sure. Mr. Soul, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Any, anytime. Last but not least, let's hear from the writers of Pandemonium, Jamie Klein and Richard Whitley. Where did you meet? Who who met who first? Well, I think we both met each other at the same time. Okay, I, that makes I, sense. I, I think, <laughs> uh, Jamie might have met me first, but I, I don't remember. Somebody um, doesn't remember. No, here's here's yeah. exactly here's what happened. I was emceeing Amateur Night at the Comedy Store because I was I was doing stand up at the time in the mid seventies. I had worked my way up through the ranks to emceeing Amateur Night. No, actually, I was full-time MC, but I loved Amateur Night because it was just a lot of fun. And here comes this kid from the Midwest with a joke that I remember to this day. Um, I don't like violence. I break out in blood. And it was like, well, there's a good joke. Let me go talk to this guy. I don't think he made regular, but we were magnetic. I mean, we just stuck to each other from that night. Right, right, Wade? Am I remembering this correctly? No, absolutely. No, I uh, graduated uh, college in June of 77 and uh, went to New York, wrote a script with some friends, and then put everything I owned in my car uh, with the important things in the front seat, which is the typewriter, the TV, and a 220-page script about 1930s Hollywood in my 74 <laughs> Blue Dodge Dart Swinger and headed out to L.A. I had done stand-up a couple times in college, and I said, well, check out the comedy store. And as Jamie can attest, Jamie was a regular. Jamie was a big deal. I was just this schmo in a, in a 74 blue Dodge Dart sweeter and just hanging out for a while. And Jamie was terrific. And But, you know, uh, I went up on ma- amateur night, and a couple of people said, your material is really good, but you really are not a good performer. <laughs> I was just so nervous. And you were very generous, Jamie. But after a while, when we, as Jamie was saying, it was just magnetic. The two of us really connected. We had all the same influences with Woody Allen and Buster Keaton and all that stuff. We just really, it was just a real connection immediately. But after a while, you know, uh, I'm seeing David Letterman, Gary Shandling, Jerry Seinfeld, and I'm going, what am I doing? <laughs> this is like Mount Rushmore yeah. of comedy. Yeah, I mean, that's and, what happened. You know, really, for me, I mean, I was getting uh, a lot more traction with wit and with writing than I was on stage. And then you watch Leno work for 45 minutes, and then you watch Robin Williams work the crowd, and you go, what the fuck am I doing? So so it just kind of, you know, it was just kind of, you know, it was like, okay, we're we're moving on. 
And at that time, and I was I, writing for Fern, or was writing for Fernwood Tonight and for the Gong Show. Actually, um, I was writing those little introductions for Chuck, and I was making more money than I was ten bucks a night at the comedy store. So um, just said, forget it, you know. So I quit stand up in like '79. Right before the strike, actually. And I, I, I do remember just being overwhelmed, you know, coming to L.A. and sneaking onto all the movie studio lots and everything. But there were so many revival theaters. There were so many theaters that showed old movies. And I would say, Jamie, let's go see Preston Series movies. Let's go see Casablanca on the big screen. Let's go see, you know, these uh, Howard Hawks movies. And we would just go to all these old movies. Just, I mean, it was just... You were like, it was heaven. It was just seeing well, all you these know, the, films. The, the, Beverly, the Beverly Cinema was around, and the New Art was around. Uh, those the are Sherman, really the two, the, right? No, the Vagabond on Wilshire. Oh, my God. The Sherman right. in the Valley. There was, there, was, there was at least four theaters that were showing old yeah. movies. Yeah. And I went a lot. I mean, in college, I tried to see 365 movies a year. Didn't make it. Only at, only saw 320. But I did get laid and fell in love that summer and got a script out of it. So I, I think it was okay. But we we connected on all these things. But wait a second. Wait a second. Mike, Jamie was writing for uh, Chuck Barris. And, you know, it's like his jokes are on national TV. Jamie, come on. you got to tell him the joke. You filled in as bachelor number two. Come on. I'm oh, a doctor. Yeah, and you're the patient. you got to tell him that joke. It's a great joke. No, I don't remember. I No. What was it? Massage? What was the... I was yeah. heavily influenced by Woody. I mean, and if I go back and look at that footage, it's just... Yeah. And, you know, I was working at Chuck's, and uh, one of the bachelors had dropped out on Dating Game, and they said, do you want to go on? Are you single? I said, sure. And so I went on. Anyway, back to back to us. So, so we're just so just establishing who we were. We were really close friends. It would get to the point where it'd be like one one thirty in the morning, and I would pick up the phone and call Wit. Hey, Wit. Hey, hey. Circus therapist. Okay, it's a therapist that travels with the circus. Okay, and he's got he's got a clown on the couch, right? And he and and he goes, Doc, I'm, I need help. I can't go anywhere unless there are seventeen other people in the car with me. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I just painted my house. Really? What color? All of them. I mean, you know, but but like at 2 o'clock in the morning, I could call wet, and we would we would bounce shit off each other. And it wasn't like, oh, you woke me up. It was, it was like, and then he was like on top of it, you know, and he had three jokes, and I had three jokes, and then, okay, that's, I'm, I'm, we're done. That's, we, that's what it was like for three years before we ever had the idea for Thursday the 12th. Absolutely. Um, I think what well, that was Jim Hart with SNL. We started writing sketches. Remember that? Right. Sure. Yeah. He, he said he that, knew. That's right. A friend of Jamie's had a connection in Saturday Night Live. They said they're looking for writers. So it was Jamie and I. I think the first writing we did uh, that was organized was we wrote we wrote sample scripts to submit to Saturday Night Live. And yeah, and beats and beats. We, was, we didn't uh, get it because yeah, I'm, that's, yeah, and we didn't get it. But those sketches were pretty darn funny. One was uh, the stream of consciousness meeting. The other one was writing elves, where at night the elves come in and write the sketches. And the other one was it was they were terrific sketches. I, I thought they were really how you, funny. How do you get shoehorns for those for those shoes? <laughs> I got a story that'll cover your shoes. Oh, I see you've already heard it. I see. You. What the hell's wrong with the clock? Um, yeah. That's right. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, so, so we, yeah. but 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 it was it was like it was just like okay, let's we, and we were we were always doing bits back and forth, and that was like that was probably like a day's work to do those sketches because the chemistry was already there, 
And then we, I remember we, sometimes we'd say, hey, you want to hang out? So we'd hang out like Friday in Beverly Hills then was just, you know, all the beautiful people were there. We would ogle. And it's like, oh, look, there's an art gallery opening. And like, you know, it's Friday night. We have nowhere to go. And the photographers of the Beverly Hills newspapers are there. And they had like a big cheese spread, like cheeses of the world, you know, Mike, with the flags, right? So Jamie and I would just like, you know, move the flags around. There were different, you know, for the different countries. We were just like doing bits in public. And Jamie would sometimes go, hey, you want to go to Westwood and just do bits? Okay. So we would just walk around and look in the windows or look at people or what do you think that person's name and job is? You know, just, yeah, just well, that was, do. That was the fun thing. We'd, it was to stand in line and wait for a movie, and but the, but to name people as they walk by. Just, just like, was, oh, there's Bob and there's Jane and there's Archie and there's no, you, you called and, someone Spencer once and I think I nodulated a <laughs> ice cream I ate in third grade. It was like, it, it was it's just... Four, it's 40 years later, you still remember Spencer. So... Yes, what am I going to say? <laughs> but there you go. But, you know, it was, uh, you know, but we always wanted to, to write something together. And we, we came up with this uh, idea, this art thief idea that uh, Witt, uh, Witt had already written uh, Rock and Roll High School. And so yeah, he had I'd already done that. Yeah, I didn't have a motion picture agent. So we came up with this idea called Paint by Number. It was an art thief thing. It was a, it was a, it was a caper picture where people stealing and forgeries and they and it was really intricately worked out and it was like a 20 minute pitch and so we go to see his agent norman stevens over at writers and artists and we pitch this thing and he goes well i can i can get you a couple of meetings that's that's so we're pretty feeling pretty good he goes what else you have he goes well we've kind of got this idea for an airplane version of friday the 13th we're calling it thursday the 12th but that's all we have he, he lit up like a light bulb picked up the phone called barry cross and doug chapin immediately that afternoon i think wasn't it with Was I, 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 I didn't remember being that quick um a little backstory though aside from us doing bits i remember we went to the gordon theater on la brea and we said hey let's go see uh, uh friday the 13th you know it'll be it'll be Silly and fun, you know, and I think we were the only people in the theater. It was like a, it was like a two o'clock show, and it's a wonderful old Art Deco historic theater. And suddenly we're watching the movie, Mike, and Jamie does a joke, and then I do a joke, and then I do a joke, and we're like thirty minutes in, we said, "Wait a second, there's something here." You know, airplane had already been huge, and we thought there's something here. And I remember going to a coffee shop or going to one of our apartments and starting to write down this stuff, and then going back again to see it again and write down, writing down more jokes. I do remember that. But Jamie's forgetting, as, as, I, as he said, I gave him a, his big break acting wise. Aside from television, I, I helped with his major uh, feature film debut because in Rock and Roll High School, I got him a, a job, uh, helped get him a job as an extra. So he's in a scene with the Ramones. So come on. Yeah. I'm in a, yeah, I'm in a, yeah. It's an aerial <laughs> shot of the Ramones, and I'm waving. Yes, that's right. That's, yeah, there uh, he is right there. You know. Yes, I, as I said, I was very lucky getting uh, uh, Rock and Roll High School, writing that with my college buddy, Russ Devonch. And then after that, you know, just hanging out with Jamie, and it was just wonderful. And as, as you can hear, one thing led to another, whether we were just doing bits and riffing and then seeing this movie, and a light bulb kind of went off, and we had no outline or anything, but telling Norman Stevens, you know, that and his face lit up. I don't remember going into Barry and Doug that quick, or did we have a full outline or just bits? We didn't have bits at that point. I think what we had was we wanted to be around cheerleaders, and we and and then uh, we had the idea of it being Blue Grange, who was you know a great football player, but they wouldn't let him be a cheerleader. 
and that's what led to his frustration, and that's why he was killing cheerleaders. So uh, that's all. That's really all we had. Um, yes. And then we then we met with Barry and or we met with Barry and Doug or Doug. Yeah, we met with Doug. And uh, and he goes, well, that sounds that sounds like fun. Do you have a third act? It's like third act? No. <laughs> we went back and we and we came up with like the the button and the third act and how it resolved. And then I remember this like it was yesterday. We had lunch with him and Mr. Chow in Beverly Hills, and we pitched him the third act, and he loved it. And he went uh, to Nancy Harden at CBS Films, and uh, we went in. And so we wrote it for CBS Films and actually got an office without a window. I mean, we had to file <laughs> office supplies at night. But um, it was, you know, they gave us an office on the CBS Radford lot to, to write this script. It was pretty great. I know. Um, I mean, even and, even to this day, there's there's sometimes when I'm watching a Seinfeld and they do exteriors outside of an office building, and it's that building on on Radford, CBS Radford, because that's where they shot. Well, the building we had the office in is the in the ground floor elevators. The elevator Mary Tyler Moore is in in the credits of the um, Mary Tyler oh, Moore really? show. Oh, yeah. That, that, oh, I that's didn't know that. used all the time because that soundstage faces the Roseanne stage and the Seinfeld stage, which are back to back going north to south. And absolutely. The thing with us, because we were so in love with the business and with movies and stuff, and we would just walk around like all day and just talk to people and go to sets and eat lunch where we weren't supposed to. And then we would write at night, and uh, that was that was just it was just great. There was there was a window. I mean, seriously, it was a windowless office. And, it, it, um, it absolutely was, and and we were like the least corporate people. Everyone was wearing suits and ties and dressed very very nicely. And uh, but as Jamie said, we used to walk around. I mean, when I first came to town, it was so much easier to sneak onto movie studio lots. And I remember sneaking onto that lot and watching them film Bob Newhart and the Tony Randall Show and and all that kind of stuff. And but Jamie and I would walk, and this in the exterior of the um, the gun smoke of Dodge City was still some of the remnants were still up. Uh, that Claude Lelouch then filmed uh, Another Man, Another Chance, his first American movie there, and it was just a very historic lot. That was Republic Pictures, I think, right, Jamie? Maybe could um, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah, and it was just, but we just had a great time walking around movie studio a lot, looking at sets, and just you know having a great time, and you know, um, and to write this script, we were it was terrific. And I remember I mean, one, we of the, had, one of the. I'm sorry, what? what no, no. Well, I remember on our wall we had typed the Joe Gillis line. Nobody thinks the anyone writes a screenplay. Everyone thinks the actors make it up. We wrote that and taped that onto our wall. Yeah, that and yet that's Alan's crumple. I remember, I remember us walking around and going into these huge sound stages and and going, why don't they leave the set standing? We'll write a movie around it, you know. Um, Absolutely, because that's what they used to do in the studio days, you know. Yeah, they used to write shorts around standing sets. But, Absolutely, um, but um, but as you know, Mike, when we started, when we pitched it, and then CBS said yes, I think we only pitched it to one place, right, Jamie? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. And the and, the, uh, uh, the under executive was a guy named Ron Yerksa, who went on to produce Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, Ron is in Nebraska and a lot of other Alexander Payne films uh, with his partner, I think Albert Berger, and uh, they make terrific movies. Um, he, said, he said, "We're really taking a Kierkegaardian leap with you guys." I remember that quote. It was like, "Oh, I got to go home and look that up." Yeah. Um, <laughs> did he write for show shows? What was your writing process, and how did you decide which films to parody, and how did the, the script itself come together? But yeah, please tell me about the title as well. 
Did they screen movies for this, Jamie? I don't remember. They did for Road to Ruin, but I don't remember. I if think they that was screened. Road to Ruin. Yeah, we didn't have a window. They weren't going to screen movies for us. <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> that, that's right. It's like uh, <laughs> we had a requisition a window. Um, they, um, uh, that's right. So we probably on our own, we had already seen Halloween and, and all that. But when we pitched it, we wanted it to be, of course, in the vein of, of Airplane in that, you know, they hired Lloyd Bridges and Robert Sack. They hired very serious actors that were going to play it straight. And that's how we always envisioned our script. Even though, of course, there's fun silliness going on, like in Airplane, we were, you know, uh, wanted it to be always played straight. It's ironic that in Rock and Roll High School, they did some second, they needed second unit done. And before the Zucker brothers did any shooting on Airplane, John Davidson, who had produced for New World and eventually produced Airplane, got the Zucker brothers to do the second unit shooting with the Ramones that I think the scene Jamie is in, where they're being pushed on the hall in the in the laundry basket. The title was always Thursday the 12th. That's how we pitched it, always. Right, Jamie? Yes, yes. And then we had to change it because of Friday the, four, the 14th. No, no. Or Saturday the 14th. Saturday the 14th, yes. Yeah, Richard the New Benjamin. World Picture. That came out that came, because it was so... Um, because New World Pictures was was so you know nimble, they could have an idea, write the script, go out and shoot it like immediately. So they were a little bit more uh, quicker than we were. Um, right, exactly. Because there was a rumor that, that uh, they we sent our script. It eventually landed at MGM UA, but there, I remember it was sent to Paramount, and that we waited months and months to get a response. And the rumor was that they were doing another movie in the similar vein called Student Bodies, and they were holding on to ours to get theirs further along into production. We were we thought we were the first, but then suddenly Student Bodies and Saturday the Fourteenth, so we had to come up with a new title. And I'm looking at the title page right now, Mike, of all of our alternate titles. Should I share them, Jamie? I think you. I think you should. Sure. Thursday the twelfth, of course. Right. Sis boom kill. I think that's my favorite. Um, Share for me. I'm dead. Megaphone murders. Pom pom perils. Cheerleader. DOA. Final score. Hurt perky and dead. Homecoming, where the theme is murder. Pep rally, where the theme is murder. Murder rally, where the theme is pep. <laughs> so, so um, this is this is a script dated January thirtieth, nineteen eighty one. So it's the first revised draft, and um, the opening. And you I'll also have to you. know, Mike. You also have to know we're we're like twenty four. You know, we've we've got a big studio deal. We're getting fifty thousand. You know, I was making ten dollars a night working the door at the comedy store, and suddenly yeah. we're, we're fifty thousand dollars, and it's like, oh, holy cow! And it, it was after you know after. Um, a gong show. So I was like, oh, geez, it was great. I think about a 24-year-old kid now at my advanced age, and it's like, oh, it's it's amazing we ever got anything done. No, exactly. But we had so damn much energy, and we loved the process. We loved going into work every day and writing and typing. You know, when I was your age, I used a typewriter. Uh, yes, and it was <laughs> it was a typewriter. So many, so, it was so like, many times when we would take a pause. And we would go, can you believe we're getting paid for this? I mean, Absolutely. I mean, seriously. All, because, because we had been hanging out and doing bits for three years for free, <laughs> for nothing. And now somebody's paying us to do exactly the same thing, pretty much, except with a little bit tighter premise around it. 
So absolutely. Uh, so it was. It, yeah, it was like a dream. It was. So Mike, um, this this never made it to the movie, but uh, the opening um, the opening thing it says note: none of the cheerleaders are described in the script. We take it for granted that everyone knows they're all cute, energetic, and all American. In other words, just the type of person that deserves to die. And then the next page is fade in the story, all names, characters, and individuals portrayed in this production are fictitious. No identification with actual persons, places, buildings, or products is attended or should be inferred. Fade out. Fade out. Fade in. Well, all right, maybe one building. Fade out. Fade in. End a person. Fade in. Who's holding a product? Fade out. Fade in. In a major city, but we can't tell you what city. Fade out. Fade in. It's either Chicago or Cleveland. Fade out. Fade in. It's not Cleveland. Pause. Fade in. Now guess. Fade out. Fade in. It's not Chicago either. Fade out. Fade in. We lied. It's so silly. Yeah, but think about so that. Think about that open in the open of the actual movie. You know, yeah, <laughs> a little different, a little different, a little different. Yeah, a little different. Yeah, but um, uh, so the the question was, what is your writing process? And it was us being silly <laughs> and putting it on a page. A friend of ours, actually, uh, who was a screenwriter, a pretty accomplished screenwriter, very good writer, uh, actually read the script, and the first thing he said was. You guys just write down whatever makes you laugh, don't you? Yeah, pretty much. That's pretty much what we do. We really didn't know about character arc at that point. We didn't really know about act breaks or, you know, uh, you know, inciting incidents or midpoints or any of that stuff. But we, it, it but just like kind of happened naturally. You see so many movies. You just assimilate it. And when I look at my early scripts, whether it's Rock and Roll High School with Russ or this with Jamie, you realize that's kind of innate. It's like, you know, that the end of Act 1 is they arrive at the camp. In the middle of Act 2, there's the twist. Oh, my God, it's not the psychopath or the prisoner. It kind of all falls into place because even if you, you know, taking aside Sid Field and all that kind of stuff or any other 3 X structure class, it all kind of is there. It, it still flows in that. Way because we've seen so many movies. Yeah, and especially if you go back and read your old scripts, you know, you're like, holy cow, this falls right into place because it, you know, it, it does. It just gets through you, in, into you like osmosis. It just kind of seeps in and it becomes part of your process. Exactly. I teach uh, screenwriting at USC, Mike, and I teach that 3X structure class. And it's like, uh, first thing I tell them is, you've seen so many movies. You're much smarter than you think. And you probably know much more than you actually realize. And especially, <laughs> <laughs> do, do I still get paid? Um, um, <laughs> um, I remember, uh, uh, when they asked me to teach that class, I went to Jack Epps, who had written, you know, Top Gun and all that kind of stuff, who was the chairman at the time, and of uh, the department, I said, Jack, I was never taught how to do this 3X structure and everything, but I was still writing screenplays. He goes, how did you learn? I go, I watched movies with a, with a legal pad and read scripts and r- realized where everything happened, and that's how I learned 3X structure. And he goes, that's how we all did. Most baby boomer writers didn't have those, you know, very strict and specific film school etiquettes and 9,000 books on it. And I said, oh, great. Can I just tell them to do that and they can save all that money? And he said, please don't. But anyway, so two crazy, silly guys in a windowless office are writing this script. That kind of tells you a lot. (laughs) You talked a little bit about the opening of that original version. I'm curious how the story changed as you went through. And then also getting ahead of myself a little bit here, you're dealing with like, what, uh, eight, nine main characters? How are you balancing all of these different characters? Well, Um, if you look at it, it, it's kind of like, you know, you you start off, you establish each one of the characters, and then they all come together in the the camp. So 
um, you know, it's, it's either you're establishing them in a funny way at the beginning, and then they come together, and there's a lot of group stuff, and then and then as it happens in, you know, Friday the Thirteenth and any any of those other slasher movies, they break off and they get killed. So it, 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 we're not it's not a it's not a groundbreaking formula. It was for comedy, but as far as slasher movies go, it was pretty it was a pretty formulaic, I think. Absolutely, that's you know they all show up at the camp for Friday the Thirteenth and everything, and so um, we kind of went we tried to do the same structure as. Friday the 13th and those slasher movies, you know, and we have to remember this was before scary movie and, and all that. And, um, but how did the, the thing change? You know, it's like, um, you know, you know, working with everyone, everything is going to evolve and everything. And, um, you know, uh, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of uh, writers and directors. You know, Jamie and I were talking, it's like, you know, even Billy Wilder and Preston Sturges were frustrated how their movies turned out that they didn't direct. And these are movies like Remember the Night in Ball of Fire. These are now, we all consider classics. How could you not love that? So it's like, I think being frustrated sometimes at how things turn out is just common to every screenwriter it's, in Hollywood. You know, yeah, you know, it's really part of the job. I, uh, years ago, I read an interview with Woody, who is, you know, who's still, you know, one of the one of the guys up there on the pedestal for me, he went through his process and his process was, you know, like I have an idea and I, I love it. And so I sit down and write the outline. The outline's not as good as the original idea, but okay. You know, and then I write the script and the script is as good as the outline. And then I start to shoot it and the shooting of it is not really as good as the script or not as funny as I thought the script would be. And then when I'm editing it, it's not as good as what I thought it was going to be when I was shooting it. And then it comes together, and it's it's so far away from the original concept that I hardly recognize it. And this is a guy who is in charge of everything, 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 for, and and no studio interference. Nobody tells him what to do. Nobody holds back any money. Nobody tells him who to cast. Nothing, and he's still disappointed. You can imagine when somebody's got that kind of control and they're still disappointed when you don't really have any control. There's a great story that uh, Whit and I went to the museum of, uh, when, they, when they used to show movies at the museum before they tore it down at the Bing. And it was a screening of Some Like It Hot and Witness for the Prosecution. And Billy Wilder was going to speak at the end. It was like, oh, shit, you know, let's go. So we go and we say, we want, we want, yeah, you know, and we watch the movies and they're just fucking great. And some like it hot, people are rolling in the aisles. And, uh, and then Billy comes out and he takes a bow and everybody's applauding. It's a big standing ovation and they open it for questions. And one of the questions was, what was it like to watch this movie with an audience again? Because it's only been on TV or video and you, you now it's like, what, what, what does it feel like? He goes, I did not watch it. You didn't watch it. You didn't watch it. I could not watch my movies because this shot was too high, this shot was too low, that inflection was wrong, she screwed up that line, but you never, you know, and it's like, even he, you know, in these movies he wrote and directed, was still, you know, making making changes. So, you know, it's, it, it is very frustrating when you just write, but, uh, you know, the, you, you're dealing with all kinds of stuff, you know. Um, you know, I'm a creative director now, and I, I do spots all the time, and I produce spots all the time, and the spot is never, you know, it's only 30 seconds, and it still is never exactly how you picture it. So, 
Right. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the unfortunate things, uh, you know, and, and, uh, of being a writer. And that's why one of the great joys of writing is just sitting down and doing that first draft. Absolutely. Because, a- absolutely. because you know, there are no restrictions and there are, there is nobody telling you what to do when you've already come up with the script and somebody already loves it and they already are looking forward to reading it and you are just pouring yourself and your heart and your brain into it. And um, and then the adventure starts. <laughs> when does that um, cold glass of water get thrown in your face? When do you realize, oh, this isn't going to be as fun as I thought it was going to be? <laughs> um, um, well, um, I, I watched that um, uh, the first time we met Mr. Soul. He actually said to us, um, I don't get comedy. I don't really understand it. You're going to have to help me. And he says that in his interview on the Blu-ray. And as writers and as, you know, again, 25-year-old, you know, guys, um, it was like, well, okay, I think that's great. If he wants to come to us and, and he's going to kind of help us realize our vision and have him put it on film and kind of know where the camera goes, but have our timing and our and, and and our sensibility in in his you know in his asking then okay because without him the movie would not have been greenlit so it's a little late right there to to switch out directors or to go well wait a minute hold it he doesn't understand comedy well we understand comedy and he's coming to us for help so you know and, for me that was that was okay you know um, but it's not, and, uh, you know and, and I've, I've thought about this a lot and it's just not a matter of whether you're talented or whether you're not talented or whether you know or whether you're good or you know anybody who's in the position to have a movie greenlit because they say yes has some kind of chops along the way right it's a matter of matching sensibility. And it's a matter of matching sensibility with something that's so specific, like this type of comedy. And so, we were kind of excited because he had done Alice with Alice, and which was a serious, straight-ahead uh, horror film with Brooke Shields. We thought, that's the kind of tone we want in this, to play it completely straight as a horror movie. Because then right. the jokes are going to play better against the, the, uh, the seriousness, just like an airplane. And uh, that's what we were hoping for, right, Jamie? I mean, you know, that's exactly, um, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. A- absolutely. And Whit and I really didn't know horror, so we thought with our comedic sensibilities and his horror framing and lighting and sensibilities, that somewhere there was some magic alchemy that was going to happen in there. We uh, now, as yeah. far as the moment, <laughs> I don't know when that moment was. Wait, do, you, do you know when that moment was? Uh, when, 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 when I when started we were in, uh, I think we're in trouble here. I felt it when he said that, but that's Jamie's more of a glasses half full guy, and uh, <laughs> uh, in that instance. But you know what? The casting was was amazing, and you know uh, we were very very excited. And I remember we all went as a group to go to the Groundlings, and we saw that's where we got Paul Rubens and Phil Hartman, and it was it was pretty exciting. And you know Phil Hartman only has gets what two lines, and he and he does it perfectly as like the hard bitten kind of news reporter. Because we had seen him parody the hard-bitten kind of detective, like Sam Spade in one of the uh, Gromley sketches. So he was perfect in that. So we were very excited, and you know, we were on the set every day. We were associate producers, and um, it was exciting to be around these classic people like Tab Hunter, who was just the nicest, classiest guy in the world. Just, just wonderful, you know, telling us stories about uh, damn Yankees and things. And, you know, there were some things that comedic sensibility sometimes is, you know, is things you can discuss, you know, beforehand. And, you know, uh, but 
we, we don't get the final say. We're the writer, so it, it's it's you know we're, we're not the final arbiter. We do know we were proud of the script, and of course the scripts can always get better. And uh, you know I remember the producers uh, wanted Joel Schumacher, and he loved the script, and eventually hired Jamie and I to help punch up DC Cab. So that was nice. Yeah. So Jamie and I got to sit for two weeks uh, with Joel and um, Gary Rosen and uh, Bob Zamuda. So that was a fun two weeks. <laughs> Being on the set was, you know, it was it, it was a, a good vibe on the set, didn't you think, Jamie? Yeah, I thought so. I, I, you know, the, uh, the cast, I think Alfred got along really well with the cast. Barry and Doug and Alfred were were friendly. They were They were, I believe they were close friends. And so that was that. And uh, could could they have started with it had to be you? Maybe instead of it had to be Indiana, which doesn't make any sense. But As the joke so, is you're so, you're going to the university. It had to be you, and it had to be Indiana. It's they reversed it the joke. It had to be you. Has to be first. Anyway, it was fun. It was a it was a good way to get our foothold in the business. I think what what did we get three or four deals after that? Uh yeah, we were we were very fortunate, and you know people, as I said, you know Joel Schumacher loved the script, and we got hired to do that, and other people read the script, and 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 you know uh, so we did get work off of it, so it did uh, you know uh, spiral uh, in in a good way in that way, but um, you know and we're, as Jamie said, working with the actors were terrific. I mean this was great. So judges. Judge Reinhold is, pat, uh, is cast, and we're in. So first of all, we're filming. Our offices are on the old Goldwyn Studios lot, and so Jamie and I. Oh my God, they filmed the apartment here in best years of our lives. This is amazing. Oh my God, this is like I'm just you know goosebumps every day. And then so we're in these offices, and Judge just shows up after being cast with blonde hair. It was his decision to go blonde. And I thought, well, that's kind of perfect. <laughs> it's like, and and judges' instincts are just terrific, and his comedic timing is wonderful. I think in it, I think he's he's quite good in it. We we killed him off way too soon. It was just so exciting. So we got to meet Donald O'Connor, and so I remember Jamie and I sitting there, and it's like I remember kind of thinking, you know, everyone's going to ask about what make me laugh and singing in the rain, and we sat down with Donald and we asked him what was it like to work with Buster Keaton when he started in the Buster Keaton story. And his face lit up. And I remember him asking, how old are you? How do you know that movie? Right? He just, he just was just, his face lit up and he regaled how Buster taught him how to take a fall and how wonderful it was. And they were filming the scene and he turned to Buster and he said, did any of this happen? And Buster said, no, but they gave me $50,000 and I bought a ranch in the valley. Which yeah. is great, it, it always, know? it always, you know, and, and not, not, and that's a great story, but it always kind of, it's a little annoying when people say, Eddie Cantor, how old are you? You know, it's like, well, what do you, what do you, you know, I'm not 90. You know, I know right. who Eddie Cantor is. And Wit always had like a great, a great phrase, which was, if you want to make shoes, you got to know who made the moccasin. And, and there's, there's really something to an, a, 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 you know, cinematic education or a comedic education that, uh, you know, you know who Jackie Vernon is, you know, you know who Myron Cohen is. You can do George Carlin bits like verbatim, and there's there's really something to be to be said about that. And I I think it's it's really great when you can meet somebody like Donald O'Connor and talk about Buster Keaton, and he's he's really impressed. 
So um, absolutely, it, it was it was wonderful. And um, another connection to um, film history: the property master on the movie was a guy by the name of Ace Holmes. Now, Ace Holmes is in the office where um, it's supposed to be. The, the joke was maybe it was more a written joke, and maybe that's our mistake. But on the wall should have been a moose, an elk, and he was going to be a Shriner, right? 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 And so he's wearing the fez. So that's Ace Holmes. Ace's first job in show business was guarding the tree, Jimmy Cagney's tree, in Mr. Roberts. Oh, wow. That was pretty darn cool. I mean, it's like, and, and he was an old curmudgeon, but I mean, you're just a, an experienced curmudgeon, I shouldn't say, not old, but just a, 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 a just, it was great to sit and talk with him. Remember that, Jamie? They, yeah, the casting crew were just, were just wonderful, so... Other people that were in it, we were very lucky. There's a connection. There's two connections to Rock and Roll High School. The guy who gets the Three Stooges pie is Daniel Davies, who was one of the hall monitors in Rock and Roll High School under Mary Warnoff. And Alex Elias was the girls' gym, uh, the girls gym teacher in Rock and Roll High School, and she was the um, the the head what was a, you know the, the owner of that uh, that hot dog drive-in thing, which changed, yeah, which changed dramatically from the script, but, oh boy. I think the scene still works, only because me and Whitley are still in. <laughs> yeah. What was it supposed to be originally? Uh, well, the House of Bad Pies is, works fine. It was filmed at a very famous L.A. historic landmark, uh, an old diner from the, the Depression era named Phil's Diner. And Jamie, my cameo is, uh, I have the all-you-can-eat special. Okay, that's all-you-can-eat. And Jamie, your cameo? I had the menu. I'll have this. And then she tears the menu and gives me the piece of the menu. Right. Which would have been so a little better actually, had she not ripped it in half because it made it look like she was just mad that I ordered something off the menu. No, if you right. if you just a little bit finer, yeah, it's just very small, subtle stuff like that would have would have made it just a little bit better. But also the coach at the beginning, remember Mike, the coach who was a uh, Blue Grange's uh, coach. Oh, God, Lenny, Beth, Montana. Lenny Montana. Yeah, Luca Brazzi. Luca Brazzi in The Godfather. I was so surprised to see uh, Sidney Lassick show up just as like yes, what, he had Sydney, one yes. line in the bus station. He's got yeah, dirty these are not dirty. Uh, but, these are. Are. but we did we did talk to uh, you want you want to tell him the uh, Lenny Montana story? You should you should uh, you should. He was he Go was ahead. actually in the uh, you know he he did some questionable things when he was growing up in Jersey or wherever he was from, he told us that they used to hide that when they were hired to do arson. Now, he may have been making this up. I don't know. That they would put incendiary devices inside a tampon, inside a rat, light the wick and let the rat go into the into the building so they could never quite tell where the fire started. So, Jamie and I love talking to these these actors who were doing all the cameos, because as Jamie said, our love of movies, you know, from the silent days to to now, you know, we were able to have a conversation with these folks, and that was pretty darn exciting. Like, Kate Ballard was very, very nice. Eve Arden, you know, uh, we wanted to ask her about being in At the Circus, and um, Vern Rowe is in it. He was in Jerry Lewis's movie, The Big Mouth. He's one of the, uh, the, uh, the prisoners who opened the gas chamber. Gary Allen uh, in it. He was he worked with Woody and uh it was those who can't teach teach Jim. Right. Uh he that's was right. That teacher in Annie Hall. Um, oh that's right. I 
but he, it's like such old school language we gave him. That's where the major dough is furniture. And Michelle Hugo, the DP, was also the DP on Head, the movie that the Monkees did that Jack Nicholson wrote. So we, it was a, a lot of really good people. And David Lander, who sadly passed away, uh, was a very nice guy. I remember talking with him a lot about baseball. He was a big baseball fan. And yeah, you know, very he nice and now this was cut, this was cut out of the movie. He and his mother Salt who was not Marie Austinskaya, they lived in a, on a uh, boxing ring. That was their apartment. That was their apartment. And there was a sofa and like a little kitchen in one of the corners and then a sofa because that's where they, that's the only place they could live. And the, the gym, the gymnasium at USC where we, where we filmed is on the second floor. It's the only second floor gym in the entire city. And the crew was just really mad because every night they had to strike everything and clean out that gym and take all that equipment downstairs. Yes, there was no, there was no elevator. I don't think there was an elevator. But they were, and then the next morning they had to come and bring everything back up the stairs. It was how many, how many second story, how many second floor gyms are there in the world? We, um, we found the one. I remember when I first start, when I first started teaching at USC, I it took me a few semesters, and I finally found that gym, and um, and also a lot of that is the USC campus, which I've found the locations, but that gym is still there. Oddly enough, there is no plaque saying that our movie was filmed there, but that's a shame. Um, maybe I could put a post-it up or something. See, it doesn't stop. You know, it, it does. just doesn't. It just doesn't stop. Do you guys remember anything else that was filmed that wasn't used? Quite frankly, the story didn't really change. I mean that that opening that opening sequence with the uh, you know the the shish kebab cheerleaders in there from draft one, I believe, right, Wynn? Absolutely, it was always. I mean, we had we had look, we had to do little things like put in, gee, that halftime salute to vegetables really worked, just to make sense out of the fact of why would they be carrying huge vegetables. But, and, but and some you know, things, just little things like that. Yeah, but some things were moved around, like if the, the final, like you know, the big finale at the Coliseum. Salt and Peppy are in the end zone, and it doesn't really make sense in the script. If you read it, and I have the March 11th draft, which is probably the one you have. They're in the stands with the refreshments because every year the killer kills cheerleaders. So they're there to watch it as a fan. Suddenly, if you're in the end zone, it, it was odd to me. It, it's funnier if they're in the stands. I always wondered why they were there, just suddenly cut in there, sitting there. It's like, what? Yeah, what what's happening? It, no. Yeah. I mean, but if they're in the stands, that means it happens every year. They, you know, okay, we're going to watch this guy kill people again. Okay, this is very exciting. I should say Candace Azara, just a wonderful, wonderful person, a class act, genuinely sweet and nice on top of being very, very talented and, and having good comedy chops. And she's just, I remember getting Christmas cards from her. She's just very sweet, very nice. Yeah, she's very nice. Beverly Scott, all of them. I mean, Miles is really the only one I'm still in touch with. But yeah, all of them were just really spectacular. I just wish that Mark McClure hadn't looked at the camera so often. Twice, yeah, because that's not none of that is in the script, and breaking the fourth wall kind of cut some of the tension, we thought, you know. And we're not saying that it's, like, so much tension to begin with, but... I mean, it worked yeah, really well with it, Ferris Bueller, breaking the fourth it did. And It worked for Jack Benny and George Burns, too. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> a movie was different, and Groucho uh, kind of pulled it off uh, <laughs> yeah. quite well. Uh, but, um, uh, you know... But that, it's, that, wasn't uh, Mark's, that wasn't Mark's decision, so... Uh, and I think that there were probably some takes where he didn't. So, and the, and that was just an added decision in the bay with uh, you know Eric Jenkins. 
who who cut who cut it. Um, and he he was fresh off Altered States, so he was fresh off working with Ken Russell. And I take it you guys didn't really care for the soundtrack very much. A talented composer, but I guess Jamie and I did say in our meetings uh, with the producers and the director that we thought the music should be legitimately scary music, like in Friday the 13th and uh, Halloween, because to try to create that feeling that, you know, it's a real one of those movies, like like an airplane again, which was kind of the, the standard at the time, you know, of the, you know, at least that was our, our hopes. Uh, did, would you agree, Jamie? That, I mean, the, but the whole the whole idea was that it was a was a horror spoof, and and you got to have something hard to bounce that ball off of. And if everything is funny, then nothing's funny. You know, it, it's like you know, in his later movies, God bless him, when Jerry Lewis is driving a car and it goes, you know, he he goes really fast, and then he slams on the brakes, and you know, really fast and slams on the brakes. I mean, he even drives funny. And it's like you, you got to take a breath. You got to do a setup. It, it can't all be a punchline. And um, and I, th- I think that that's that's one of the things that we kind of understood in the script that that didn't quite translate to either the music or the or the final cut is that it was it was just so which is why it's so short, <laughs> which is why it's eighty one minutes. Is that it's just all it, it just all, is all punchlines. And and had the time been taken to you know kind of do the setup a little bit more uh, with a little bit more finesse, you know, shall we say, uh, then, then, the, then the jokes would have played a little bit better, I think. You know, we're not saying, I mean, uh, we were very proud of our script, but, you know, it could always be made better. A- absolutely. And um, I wish they'd let us rewrite it now, but I don't think they will. Um, <laughs> well, actually, we could rewrite it, but no one will care. <laughs> let's, do, let's, do, let's do a remake. Yeah, a, a reboot, I think the kids call it these days. Yes, that's um, what the kids call it. Jim McCrell is also very funny. Let's give him a shout out. Um, is the dad of the uh, uh, of who? What was that character's name? Uh, Mandy Candy. Which one is she? I think the, that was Mandy. the one who Mandy. Yeah, the, the that was Mandy. Yeah. Jamie, I had one more for you, which is um, since you were coming from that uh, stand-up comedy world, were you already familiar with the Groundlings? Did you know any of those folks before they even got cast? No, uh, no, that's not stand-up. That's improv. Stand up. I mean, my my home was the comedy store. My name is still on the glass, uh, and I was, you know, MC there for regular there for like four years through, you know, through Letterman and Leno and Williams and Richard Pryor and dozens of other people that you've never heard of, uh, and I'm still, you know, in in touch with a lot of them. You know, it was late late seventies. I mean, I could do stand-up at the Comedy Store and the Comedy Store Westwood, and I didn't have to go anywhere else. I didn't have to go to the Palomino. I didn't have to go. And the Groundlings were, you know, really very, um, you know, high up on the up on the comedy hierarchy. You know, there were, there were sketches. There were a lot of actors. And actually, there were the Comedy Store players. I think more like the Cynthia, Cynthia Segetti's. Well, Lorraine Newman had come out of the Groundlings, I think, before that. Yeah, and Taylor, and you know, like the Upright Citizens Brigade. Now, I mean, there's it's such a pipeline now, but it's it's a different it's a different skill set. I mean, stand up is like it's just you, you know. Frankly, I saw my career path as as like Woody Allen saw his career path, where you start in stand up, you kind of establish a name for yourself, you can you can just do whatever you want on stage. It doesn't cost anybody any money, and you just do what you want. You don't have to get anybody's cooperation. You just walk up and do whatever you want. And the creative freedom was very appealing to me. And when the writing thing started happening, you know, with Fernwood and then the Gong Show and then Pandemonium. 
it was like, yeah, okay, all right, this is kind of this is kind of happening this way. Without you know doing a Tonight Show, without doing really any television, I kind of started on that on that path. But still, uh, you still get to know what's funny, and you still, I mean, even the groundlings. If you're standing backstage and you hear an audience react to something, something visceral happens to you, and you really understand what makes an audience laugh. You sometimes you may not agree with it. Sometimes you may scratch your head and go, "That's funny," but they're still they're still laughing. So there is a an education to doing stand up and to working the door and to watching other guys. I mean. I can still do letter, some of Letterman's early jokes. I can still do some of Leno's early jokes because I was there every night and heard it every night exactly the same way. So you can you kind of really kind of get an idea of what what is funny and what and what will get a reaction and what won't. So uh, and then I brought that I brought that into the writers room. You guys talked about working on DC Cab. What else uh, did you work on after this one? From this, Joel Schumacher read the script, Hires on DC Cab, which was just a ton of fun. And Jamie and I also wrote a script for Joel Silver and Lawrence Gordon that was a modern-day Bob Hope and Bing Crosby road movie. And that was one of my favorite Hollywood experiences, talk about having this knowledge of, of cinema history. Uh, we had lunch with Joel Silver, I remember, at the executive dining room at Paramount. And he said, listen, I read your script, which is Thursday the 12th, and I didn't really think it was funny. But I went to school with uh, at NYU with Amy Heckerling, and uh, she said, you guys are funny to give you a break. And so I thought I'd meet you, but I didn't like the script. And Jamie, Jamie, with his executive, you know, <laughs> You know, commissary, and Jamie looks at the menu and goes, Wait, I see there's a club sandwich, but I don't think it's going to be funny. Do you? Did I really and say I said, that? Well, I think of a chef salad, but I think it might be amusing. And suddenly, <laughs> we started doing bits back and forth, and my memory is that we knew that all of those films had been filmed right there at the Paramount lot, within about 300 feet of where we were sitting. We may have even known the song for, of Put Her There, Pal, from, um, you know, uh, Road to Utopia. We may have even sang that, but we went from You're Not Funny to the end of the lunch. He said, You're Hired. The whole idea was that it was it was a uh, it was time bandits was extremely hot at that time and so they wanted they wanted uh, Bob and Bing to travel through time otherwise we could do whatever we wanted they said go back so, in yeah. time and go back in time and to uh, and to use the universal back lot so they gave us offices on the universal lot initially and then we were moved to a, a motel across the street that was that they bought but we were allowed to walk around the universal back lot and we would see Belushi and Aykroyd on the golf cart because they were doing Blues Brothers. My memory is the executives at Universal were Sean Daniel and Tom Mount. Is that right, Jamie? Sean Daniel and Tom Mount? And yes, and, and we, Bruce Berman. That's right. Now, Bruce Berman was DC Cap. Yeah, you know, and so we wrote this Road to Rune script for Joel Silver, and he invited us on the set of 48 Hours, and he said, I love this script. It's going to be great and wonderful. And then, of course, it's Hollywood, so it didn't get made. But off of that script, Jamie and I got, uh, you know, people saw that we could write buddy comedies, which were pretty popular at the time. And so we wrote three pilots. For, uh, we wrote one for CBS, one for two for CBS, two one for Showtime, and more than one of them were buddy comedies. And, and then uh, we, wrote, we wrote that script for uh, Neil Israel and Pat Proft. That's right. Which is um, where we met Duke. That's right. Uh, Neil Israel and Pat Proft were hot off of, uh, you know, Police Academy and Bachelor Party. And they had a deal at 20th Century Fox. And they 
uh, they had this idea called regatta, which was, if you remember, Mike, at the time, snobs versus the slobs was the big thing. And so uh, it was the small town where regatta comes in with all the preppy guys. And so we wrote that script for Neil Isri and Pat Proft, and um, we had an office, as Jamie said, on the Fox lot. And I remember we were, it was a trailer. It was a trailer, and it used to be Penny Perry casting. Is that right, Jamie? I don't remember. It was a trailer, but there was a lot of 8 by 10s in boxes, right, in this trailer. And our joke was, if they don't like our script, they're just going to hook the trailer up to a truck and just drag us down Pico. Uh, (laughs) We won't even know. And so our trailer, there was like a a U-shaped kind of like little bungalows. It kind of looked like the Bates Motel, those kind of like wooden kind of shacks, U-shaped, that were filled with all these offices. And Jamie and I had to leave the trailer to walk down this wooden platform to go to the men's room. And one day we were walking, we were, hey, hey, you motherfuckers, come in here. We were, what's going on? And in this office, a guy who had an overall deal was a guy named Maurice Duke. And he had produced Bowie Boys movies and the Mickey Rooney television show and was very proud that he produced Bella Lugosi Meets the Brooklyn Gorilla, which everyone says, along with Glenn or Glenda or Plan 9, is one of the worst movies ever made. And what did, what did he say? I made 200 movies, all bad. Right? Yeah, we, got, we, we said, hey, Duke, you know, your name sounds familiar. What have you done? You first. Yeah, that's, you know, let, let me tell you something. The Duke stories are another podcast. They are, <laughs> they are just, you know, we're, and, and we're still close with uh, his daughter, Freddie. He made a documentary it, 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 about it, it, her dad that Jamie and I are in, um, and Jamie can impersonate Maurice quite well, so he's in quite a bit, but, um, Well, I mean, you know, you know look, he, he said, hey, I'm old, you're young, come in with ideas. So we had this idea for a cartoonist that, you know, whatever it was, it was, a, it was, it was, he was next door to, his office was next door to a detective, that, and the cartoonist used the detective stories to write his comic strip. And then the detective dies, and then the cartoonist takes over for the detective because he needs the stories. Okay, so it was a, a one-camera half hour. We go in, we pitch the Duke. That's pretty much what we, all we had. He goes, it's great. Let's go to CBS. <laughs> he, seriously. Like, so we immediately are in. We go, we go to CBS, and they go, okay, you got a deal. It's like, so, so afterwards, me and Whitley were standing in the parking lot. We're going, what just happened? Did we just, did we, we have to write this thing now yeah. in, in the middle of doing, you know, another script. But, um, but the Duke, the Duke stories are many and the man was a legend. Absolutely. But you should search out, um, the documentary that Freddie made about her father. As you could tell, when we tell these stories, he, he used the F word quite a bit. And the title of her documentary is fuck him. Um, and it's, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, as Jamie said, there are many. And so, um, but, from Thursday the 12th, DC Cab and then all these other things, we were very lucky getting all these deals and having a great time and writing these, these scripts and hanging out with Maurice Duke. What are you guys working on these days? You first. If you want to go over. <laughs> but I'll go first. Sure. Um, uh, I um, uh, I wrote a uh, script uh, about the story of the first Super Bowl for producer John Katzman and um, some ex-football players uh, raised the money to, to pay me, and so we're trying to set that up as a as a film. Also, some people are interested in it as a. Um, uh, television series. I also teach uh, screenwriting at USC and uh, wrote a pilot for some folks and, you know, um, right now making sure that I don't run out of batteries for my TV remote because I'm not leaving the house. I've been a creative director for 
last 15 years. At uh, uh, First it was at GSN, and now it's with a company called Fremantle. And we do American Idol, America's Got Talent. We do Family Feud with Steve Harvey. We do Match Game with Alec Baldwin. We do Price is Right with Drew Carey. We do Let's Make a Deal. You know, I'm the uh, I do uh, spots and I do ads and I do I write copy and I supervise the editors and I supervise designers and uh, we were nominated for an Emmy this year for one of our Family Feud spots, which first time that's ever happened. But yeah, but I can use those I can use those chops, those short joke structure, uh, and and we uh, I think for the network buzzer we do maybe fifty sixty spots a year. And uh, I write half the I write half of them, and it's Buzzer is, uh, has uh, vintage game shows, so it's all fun anyway. It's all like fun and funny, and one of my one of my favorite things that, that I came up with was the match game misspelling bee, because on, on match game the the celebrities couldn't spell. So, so we that that becomes a week long stunt at the end of May when they have the scripts spelling bee. We have the match game misspelling bee. And it's, it's yeah, it's a lot of fun, you know, to see to see you know Fanny Flag and all <laughs> misspelling, uh, Gary Berghoff spelled Derriere D A I R Y space A I R. There's a lot of fun, but it's a very very fine line between having fun with and making fun of. So it's this it's this thing though, and I'm, we're in the middle of a rebrand right now, so there's plenty to do, and it, I, I just find it a lot. It's just a lot of fun. We I, I have a concept, I write the script, I go into the edit, and in two weeks it's done. I'm on to the next thing. So it's uh, it's it's a it's a lot of fun. It's a great way to make a living if you're creative. I got to tell you, watching those uh, old episodes of Match Game, it's just it's it's life. Just it, it's so great to see those, and just God, they're still so hilarious. I know. Uh, well, we just we just, just we just produced a spot called Brett Peeves instead of Pet Peeves. So it's all these all these bites of Brett, you know, complaining. And it buttons it, it buttons with Charles Nelson Riley going. She did a love boat, and they left her on deck for too long. Uh, it's just it's just. So is it true that they filmed five in a day, and then the last two Thursday and Fridays they're drunk? Yeah, yeah, because it was after lunch. <laughs> this was such a pleasure. I, the, these stories are fantastic. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much. You're good questions, and and uh, thanks for letting us talk. You know, a lot of times people interrupt, but uh, but you just kind of let us let us go. So, um, so good luck editing. All right, we are back and we are talking about pandemonium. Rod, I think you alluded to this earlier in our discussion, but this period of time when this movie came out, 1982, we were in the middle of a firestorm of horror comedies. And I wrote about this for Paracinema. I wish I still had the, uh, I've got the issue and I know exactly where it's at, uh, but I wish I had it as some sort of like electronic version I could share with folks. But um yeah, I watched all of these horror comedies as much as I could possibly get my hands on. Some are definitely better than others, but I have to say Pandemonium is one of my favorite from the era. I want to read that article. Did we talk about Saturday the 14th or mention it? I 
Because I feel like that was one of the beginning. That was the first one I saw. For some reason, I was allowed to watch that. I think that was probably PG, and that's why. But I remember that movie. Like I I probably watched that as many times as you watched this as a kid. That that's the one I think I the first first horror parody I ever saw for sure. It's funny because I think I got my hands on the script for a few of these, and Pandemonium was supposed to be called. Thursday the 12th, which we heard about in the interview, and there's that calendar behind uh, Paul Rubens in the beginning. But I want to say a couple of these actually had that Thursday the 12th gag or Thursday the 12th name for a while. So everybody was fighting for that, and then nobody wins. Nobody ends up being called Thursday the 12th. We just have Saturday the 14th. And yeah, Saturday the 14th, I did see it quite a bit, but it was like Richard Benjamin just like ruled my childhood. He was in so many movies back then. Like Love at First Bite and Scavenger Hunt. He was great. What was the one where it was the uh, How to Beat the High Cost of Living? Mm-hmm. But it took me a long time to catch up with these other movies because like I didn't watch Student Bodies. I don't know if that's available legitimately these days or not. Is it? Okay. Oh, well, like these days. I mean, it may be out of print or something, but there was there is a Blu-ray of it with Jekyll and Hyde together again. It's a double feature. It's a great, it's a great double feature. And that's how I watched it for the first time, probably five years ago. And I love student bodies. I think that's a, uh, that's a really good one. National Lampoon's class reunion was one, wasn't it? Yeah. I think that counts. I mean, it's, it's kind of slasher making fun of, but I think that counts. Wow. I totally missed out on that one. I never saw that. You've never seen class reunion. No, I need to correct that right away. And uh, Blackie Dammit, is that his name? I know, I know that name. Yeah, it's oh, uh, it's uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers' dad, Anthony Kiedis, his dad. Oh, okay. Um, it's So John Hughes wrote that. It was like his first screenplay, maybe? They got produced. It's not great, but you know, it's got some good stuff in it. It has a great cast. Um, who else is in that besides Garrett Graham? Like you have Zane Busby <laughs> and um, Michael Lerner, I remember, is in it. Um, Miriam Flynn, you know, who's in a couple of the vacation movies as Cousin Eddie's wife. Uh, Misty Rowe, she's naked in it. That's how I remember it. Um, it's not a great movie by any means, uh, but it's one that I've, I don't know about you, Gary, but I've seen it probably four or five times. It, it was an oddity that I bought on DVD one day and. I enjoyed it good enough for what it was, but you know, like you said, it's not it's not a student bodies or something like that, which I have enjoyed enjoyed the laughing killer. It kinda reminded me of what I just thought I saw way later, which was uh New York Ripper, the quacking killer, which is uh <laughs> That's right. A, a different animal, but you know, it's just it's uh literally, but it's it's still a lot of fun. Not to throw us off track, Stephen First is in class reunion as well. I can't believe I skipped over Stephen First. Was he flounder? Yeah. Hell yeah, he's okay. Flounder. Does he come back as Flounder, no, or is that something else? Different. Different. Okay. You need to see Class Reunion, Mike. Well, I can't believe I missed that. And so, yeah, there's a glaring hole in my article, because that was not included. We'll come back and talk about that. What else was in your article? Well, it was Student Bodies from 81. And what I was saying was that when I watched the movie, I watched a bootleg DVD of it that looked very legitimate, but was not legitimate. So I'm glad to hear that that's out there, like legally now. Saturday the 14th and the sequel, uh, which was Strikes Back. 
I've never seen that one. I saw that one first, actually. I'm not going to lie to you. It was uh, <laughs> it was more readily available. I think it was a Roger Corman joint or, or Corman's company. But didn't it come out like 20 years or so after the first one? So who cared by then? I don't think that, I don't think that long. Maybe like a decade later. Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen Saturday the 14th since I was probably 10 years old. I had to have seen it a dozen times. I loved it then. I remember the Richard Benjamin and Paula Prentice's daughter in the movie was on Give Me a Break with Nell Carter, and uh, which was on TV at the time, and I loved. Uh, and I thought she was really cute. I remember she has like she's in a scene where she's in the bathtub, and that yeah. alien looking actually it looks like a slee stack from Land of the Lost mm-hmm. comes up. It totally yeah. does. Yes. So I I need to revisit that movie. <laughs> I, I remember a bat gag, and there's like some sort of Wolfman gag. I don't remember a ton about it, but I had to rewatch it eventually. I mostly remember that as being one of my first introductions to Severn Darden, who was playing Van Helsing in that. Oh. And he just is chewing up the scenery so beautifully. He's the, I love that guy. He's so great. I didn't realize that was him. Let's see. Also, I talked about, well, Pandemonium, of course. Talked about Wacko, which we actually did an episode. Got probably one of the first episodes of the Project Booth is uh, one that we did on Wacko, and that was before it was available legally. So, And that was a great episode. I remember listening to that on the drive to Colorado and being like, I've got to see this movie. And then Hysterical, which was one I really wasn't familiar with in, until I wrote that article. And, um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, I ended up talking with some of the filmmakers, the Hudson brothers, because they were all of these. It was three brothers that were the writers of that. And then Chris Beard, the director. And then the brothers also, I think, starred in the movie. Like I said, there was like this weird, Jaws thing because Murray Hamilton is the mayor in that movie as well. (laughs) I've never seen this one, so that's why I'm counting on Vinegar Syndrome to make this a trilogy by bringing it out. Because I've always been interested in it. Again, it was one that I confused with all the others as a kid because they were just all jumping through my head with these sound-alike names. But I'm dying to see it even if it's terrible, and I have no idea if it is. I remember it being fun. It's dumb, but it's fun. Of course it's dumb. I think all these are dumb. They're at different levels of playing dumb smart. I think for the most part, like Pandemonium plays dumb very smart, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like dad jokes that still work to me. That's that's what reminds me of this whole movie. You know, like dad jokes still work. The jokes still land. And I can't say that about a lot of these spoof movies, even like the more prominent ones, the jokes still land. But like I said, you could be dated and you have your jokes land, but these these jokes don't seem too dated. And I I appreciate that kind of comedy. Yeah, I just ordered um, – I didn't realize that it was available on DVD, but Ricky Part 1. Do you guys remember that one? The uh, It was a parody of the Rocky films. No. <laughs> and – Oh, yeah. So I've never actually seen that. I remember the box from uh, working at Blockbuster. So I think I'm going to watch, I'm going to do a double feature and I'm going to watch that and I'm going to watch A Man Called Sarge. That I remember. Yeah. I remember it because it was actually at the movie theater where I worked very briefly and it was in the smallest theater. I don't remember if I liked it or not. I don't think I ever sat through the whole thing, but I think I would do aisle checks and remembered the end being kind of funny. So we'll see. We'll see how I do with that. (laughs) 
I've never seen it. I just remember like Gary Kroger is like the big name in the cast and from SNL. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of Ricky One. Don't confuse it with Ricky Six. It's a whole different movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to say it's it is it Ricky Part One, but it's yeah, yeah it's, Ricky One. Yeah, no, no Ricky, Ricky one, one is what. I'll have to find that. And then, yeah, the final horror parody that I talked about was Bloodbath at the House of Death, which was one I was, again, completely unfamiliar with. And it's, I want to say it was a British production. Yeah. You've got some good names in there. You've got Vincent Price is one of the characters. I don't remember a whole lot about it other than, I want to say it might have been weirdly gory in certain parts like what are you trying to do but i do remember liking the main character uh kenny everett who's probably somebody that like people in the uk would probably be like oh yeah he's great he was in this that and the other thing but i yeah i don't really remember the guy i did i wasn't aware of bloodbath the house of death until i was in college so this would have been the early 90s my roommate was telling me about this movie he saw as a kid and i was like i've never heard of this and you know i was pretty movie knowledgeable and he kept telling me this title and i looked it up in the books i had it wasn't listed and he's like and the kicker is on the box or poster it says starring vincent price as the sinister man which we he got a huge kick out of that because that is kind of an odd credit. Vincent Price as the Sinister Man. So anyway, my birthday that year, I opened up and there's a VHS copy of Bloodbound the House of Death, which I guess was put out by Video Treasures or one of those cheap VHS companies at the time. It had just come out. And uh, we watched it. I remember, uh, other than Vincent Price in it, all our members, Pamela Stevenson, to talk about another SNL star from that era uh and like a ghost rips her clothes off that's about all i remember from the movie oh wow i totally forgot that she was in uh saturday night live i just remembered her from being uh in not the nine o'clock news was what era of saturday night live was that it was the 80s so she was on that i feel like she was on that year that had like billy crystal and martin short and just all those incredible people <laughs> okay i wasn't sure if it was that or like that dark period no with randy no, no, quaid and no i want to say it was that great year um she was only on it one year though but i'm, I'm pretty sure she was on the martin short year i want to thank my co-hosts for this special episode rod and gary so rod what's been keeping you busy lately a lot okay mike i've teased this for years and years on your show and elsewhere but 2021 is the year that I finally get that damn book out that I've been working on for close to 10 years. It has a cover, like I hired an artist and I have the cover done. I have a title. It's laid out. I just need eight hours to get it to Amazon to print. Anyway, so it's called The Flick Attack Movie Arsenal, book one. It will be out this year, unless I get flattened by a bus or something. But that's not likely because with the pandemic, I'm barely leave the house. So that will be out this year. And then I think on a, the Fuego episode I was uh, on with you and Heather Drain, I mentioned that I have an, an essay on the Zodiac Killer movie 
the 70s movie called The Zodiac Killer, in a book about David Fincher's Zodiac and other Zodiac films. That has been delayed like a year, but is coming out later this year. So probably fall, I'm guessing. I have flickattack.com, which is updated several times a week. Man, what's not to do? Get it in, man. Get it in. (laughs) A day job. But I have one of those, too, so that keeps me busy. Damn, day day jobs just get in the way. I know. know? Um, And Gary, how about yourself? What's up with you? I do a show uh, on occasion. I've been kind of on a forced hiatus because... That's just me. I, I get in the dumps and I don't do anything, which sounds really terrible as a podcaster. But I do a show called the Sin of Beef Podcast, which uh, Mike has been on before graciously. And uh, that's on the Legion Podcast Network, as well as a commentary show that I do called Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, which are not very informative, but fun to sit with friends and talk about movies. So there's that. I have other projects in the works that, uh, you know, in 2021, I told myself I'm going to be productive and I intend to. When those projects start hammering, I'm going to let Mike know about them. I hope you can push them for me. And um, Mike shows the four, but I'm, uh, this first time I've been on the show, and I've been kind of subdued on the show, and I apologize for that. But Mike's kind of a mentor to me, so I, I like hearing Mike do his thing. So me being on the air with him on his show, it, it, it is a pleasure, and i got to say that. And um, I thank you for that, my friend. Well, this is what, third shift for you? I don't even know what that is anymore. I don't, I don't, I don't know what sleep is. It did, today was fighting to get an hour, okay? Let's put it that way. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. It had to be you It had to be you I've wandered around Finally found Somebody who Could make me be true Could make me be blue And even be glad Just to be sad Thinking of you Some others I've seen Might never be me Might never be cross Try to be boss But they wouldn't do For nobody else Gave me a thrill With all your faults I love you still It had to be you Wonderful you It had to be Some others I've seen Might never be mean My 
might never be cross Try to be boss But they wouldn't do For nobody else Gave me a thrill With all your faults I love you still It had to be you Wonderful you It had to be you If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.